living in South Africa's Eastern Cape are counting down to day zero, the day when the taps in the Nelson Mandela Bay area will run dry. A mixture of climate change and mismanagement means residents there often go for days without tap water. That and the frequent power outages that are plaguing the entire country mean that many are experiencing a real winter of discontent, reports Mapola Kaje. For people in this corner of South Africa, shortages have become a daily fact of life. Shortage of water, shortage of electricity. It initially started as a temporary inconvenience, but the water shortages rapidly got worse over a period of months here in Gabecha. And like many, local resident Mziwoko Losume had to make alternative plans. So. Every day, the 27-year-old grabs a few plastic containers he keeps in the corner of his shack in the township on the edge of the city. He walks towards an abandoned building where there's a communal tap, fills his buckets and heads home. When I wash dishes, I have to use as little water as possible, he tells me. When taking a bath, I have to do the same. I now only drink water at certain times to make sure I leave enough for cooking. So this water issue affects us badly. The Eastern Cape, birthplace of Nelson Mandela, is known for its lush, rolling green landscapes. But here, by the coast in the city, Grabecha, formerly known as Port Elizabeth, the land is mostly flat with miles of beautiful beaches looking out on to the Indian Ocean. And right now, it's very, very dry. It's not the first time a major South African city has struggled with water supply issues. In 2018, Cape Town became the first major global city to face day zero. But many say the shortage here is just as severe. Currently we are here at the side called St. George's Park. It's one of the sites that has been identified, you know, that has got a high yield of, um, you know, groundwater. Joseph Tzatzire, the director for water distribution in the Gabecha local municipality, shows me one of the sites where they are hoping to drill more boreholes. He says there are multiple issues at play here. We have always experienced drought, you know, every four years. We continue to receive, you know, below average rainfall um, year on year. And I think for the longest time now, it has exceeded, you know, four years. We are actually on the seventh year receiving below average. Henceforth, we are actually in a crisis where the dams are actually depleting as we speak. But the shortage is man-made as well. Aging infrastructure has led to 28% of the water leakages. There were many warning signs, but authorities did little to heed them. And in much the same way, the crisis in the power supply was ignored. Generators, the soundtrack of this city and many others across South Africa right now. Unreliable electricity supply has become South Africa's nightmare since the mid-2000s and is getting increasingly worse. 
And this is entirely a man-made crisis with failing infrastructure at the center of the problem. Despite promises to invest and root out corruption, South Africa's ruling African National Congress has done very little so far. There are a number of issues that are wrong, but I think the most patent one now that uh, we cannot run away from is the absence of leadership. Political analyst Lukona Mguni says the ANC is out of its depth. I think you've got a leadership crisis that is multifaceted. They don't understand the problem, they don't have ideas, they don't live in the society, and therefore what we've been talking about now is a growing trust deficit where people no longer trust the leaders they have. Back in the township, a water truck has turned up. This is quite something. I am seeing children, teenagers, elderly women carrying buckets, rushing to use this moment to get fresh water. Some are pushing what look like supermarket trolleys full of plastic containers. I think this clearly demonstrates the desperation. Temporary relief, maybe, but Mziwoko Losume is frustrated, depressed and angry. You want these things to be solved, but you don't know where to go. You don't know how to solve these things. But no one in authority has been in touch with the local community. No one has told them when the water will be switched back on. No one has told them when the power cuts will stop. The long cold winter stretches ahead. Mpolagaje, Rebecha, Eastern Cape Province. Just make sure you visit here first, Cali. You might catch me in This morning, the L.A. City Council got an earful. Members, we're going to take a short recess. Please head to the back. Okay. For members Sergeant, of the audience, in case, the in case you can't hear, we're taking a recess while this is being taken care of. Those are the voices of protesters in the council chambers this morning, along with Council President Nuri Martinez and a representative of the city attorney's office. The protesters oppose an expansion of L.A. Municipal Code 4118. That's the ordinance that makes it illegal for people to sit, sleep, or lie in many parts of the city. Well, sometimes referred to as the anti-camping ordinance, 4118 has had a long and fraught history in L.A. with unhoused Angelinos and advocates claiming that it unfairly targets those who live outside or in tents. And despite today's raucous protest, during which at least one person was detained, Council members did vote to further expand the law prohibiting unhoused people from setting up tents within 500 feet of all of L.A.'s schools and daycare centers. Adam Mahoney is a reporter for Capital B News, recently dug into the complicated, very complicated history and the implementation of 4118 and why it often winds up affecting black Angelinos the most. Adam, thanks for coming on and talking to us. Thanks for having me. So 4118 has been in the books in L.A. since 1963. Can you talk about what this measure does exactly and how it has evolved? Yeah, so when it was first passed in the early 60s, it 
it started out as an anti-loitering law. Um, but over the last couple of decades, it has transformed with the homelessness crisis in the city of Los Angeles. And last year, it was amended by the council to fully incorporate what you called the anti-camping ordinance, making it illegal to sit, lie, or sleep in about 100 different sections of the city. And today, um, the council is voting to amend that amendment to make it more than 2,000 sites across the city. The, the latest expansion will put even more off limits, right? I mean, so how were the unhoused people that you talked to for your story feeling about even the possibility of that? Yeah, it was a mixed bag of responses, you know, because there's some folks who didn't even know that 4118 existed, right? Um, that doesn't mean they weren't interacting with police or county and city representatives. They just didn't have the the language um, around the ordinance. But there were definitely folks who, you know, have had and been put in situations where they've been constantly interacting with the police and constantly been pushed around the city because of the ordinance. Uh, I actually live in the harbor area of LA, so Wilmington and, and Harbor City, where a couple of those sites are already implemented. And I've, I've talked to at least two unhoused folks who have experienced being pushed around as a result, but not necessarily offered any uh, supportive housing. Well, that's the thing, right? In order to be pushed out or swept, they have to be offered some, at least shelter, right? You would, you would think, but there are not enough beds for the amount of people that we have on the streets right now. So there are folks who, you know, can go months, years without being offered anything while living on the streets. L.A. isn't the only city that contends with an ordinance like this. This is obviously a problem that affects many big cities across the country. How, how are these ordinances, these anti-camping ordinances, playing out in other parts of the country? Yeah, there are, I think, about nine, at least nine different bills across the country that have been introduced uh, that mimic the city of Los Angeles' ordinance. The biggest is probably in Austin, which passed their bill last year. Um, and in the year since they passed it, homelessness and tents in the city have actually increased. So the ordinance is not necessarily getting to the root causes of these issues, rather just pushing them around the city into places where they can be, quote unquote, disappeared, to use the, the language of advocates and activists. You, you mentioned that black people make up nearly 45% of LA's unhoused population. Um, though only about 8% of L.A. residents are black. That's a striking disparity. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I, as a black Angelino myself, uh, on the younger side, I've, I've seen the, the remnants of, you know, racist housing um, and discriminatory housing policies that have placed us in the position we are today. So when you think of, of redlining or exclusionary zoning um, and, and subprime mortgages more recently um, in the fallout of the 2008 housing crisis, it's just been whiplash after whiplash of black folks in the city losing their access to affordable um, and, and safe housing. And the story we laid out, you know, a kind of a timeline going from the, the second great migration when, when black folks really began to settle in the, in the city um, in, the, in the 1940s and 50s and how because of redlining and black folks being pushed into the city's, you know, quote unquote, disadvantaged and um, environmentally toxic communities, how that impacted not only health, um, but also access to jobs throughout the city, right? Because, you know, if you're living in South LA, 
you're poor, you don't have access to a car, it's hard to travel to some of these job centers and, and where, you know, the economic power in the city actually is. One of the people that you talked to for this story, um, a guy named Damian Wilson, compared the racial disparities that he saw in the homeless population to those um, that he saw in prison. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and I, I wonder, because the, you've got this over the course of decades in this country, the war on drugs and, you know, mass incarceration. Um, mm-hmm. How does that feed on all of this, do you think? Yeah, it's all deeply intertwined. If we think of Damien specifically, after he was incarcerated for, for two decades, one of the reasons why he lost his housing is because he, because of his record, wasn't able uh, to, to move in to housing as an individual, right? And he had to come in with a roommate um, and he got into a, you know, a struggle with his roommate was ended up being pushed out of that housing and not having access uh, to, to something else because of his record. And when we think of, you know, just the fallout of incarceration, so not being able to access jobs, um, the economy in the, in the same way, of course, that's going to intertwine and limit your access to housing and all the different things that we need to survive. And when you tie it back into the, you know, what we're talking about, 4118, anti-camping, you know, more black people living outside means they're increasingly susceptible to being policed in one way or another. Some sort of encounter could become violent. What do you say to that? How how does that get fixed, do you think? Yeah, I mean, a lot of advocates believe that not only does the policing compound this crisis, but if you were able to you know, siphon off some of those resources that are put into policing and given to folks directly, whether that be job training or, or supportive housing, that it would take the need away from, from policing, right? In the city of LA, you know, data backs this up. Nearly half of all police calls are for unhoused folks. Roughly one third of all use of force incidents are against unhoused residents. A large portion of our policing resources are being put into this crisis when there are ways where we can intervene and, and not even need that. It's certainly an important point, and it's an important story. I want to thank you for coming on and talking to us, Adam. Adam Mahoney, a reporter for Capital B News. Adam, thanks. Thank you. A majority of Americans say a lack of affordable housing is a serious problem where they live. And as prices keep rising, black and Hispanic renters are struggling the most, including with the threat of eviction. Those are some of the findings in a new poll by NPR and Harvard University. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports. Even before she lost her job this past spring, things were tight for Nikki Cox. She works in customer service in North Carolina and had been making $20 an hour. Half her income went to rent. Um, normally, if I did have something left over, it might be about 100 maybe, and that would buy my groceries and my necessities. Cox is among a majority of Black and Latino households who say they don't have enough savings to cover one month of expenses. That's according to the survey by NPR, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. It left Cox in trouble when her company lost business and her hours were cut. She switched to a temp job, but that only paid $15 an hour, a huge drop in income. Then in May, she got COVID. She was out of work for three weeks, unpaid. At one point, Cox relied on customer points at convenience stores to get free dinners. Her nephew also helped. If he knew that I didn't have anything to eat, he would send me like $10, $15. But I mean, $10 or $15 in groceries doesn't last. 
because you really can't get anything. Her landlord was understanding, but eventually set a deadline. She said, if you can't get me at least $1,600, I'm going to have to go ahead and start the eviction process. The new poll finds eviction rates are basically back to pre-pandemic levels. And many more people say they've faced the threat of eviction. Both rates are highest for Black households, which have lower income and less wealth than white ones. Peter Hepburn of Princeton University's Eviction Lab says on one hand, it's good that racial disparity didn't get worse, but it's also disappointing it didn't shrink given all the emergency help. A lot has changed in the last two plus years, right? And there was the real possibility that some of those dynamics would have shifted. And that really, you know, time and again, every time we've looked at the numbers has not been the case. He says one reason is that state pandemic policies around evictions were wildly uneven. Where you lived had a really profound impact on how well you were protected from eviction. That was true well before the pandemic, and that divide seems to be getting wider. Since her eviction threat, Cox has had good news. She found a local nonprofit to help with rent and a new job at her old pay, so she's grateful she can stay put. She had applied for housing subsidies a few years ago, but never heard back. They are chronically underfunded. Only one in four who qualify get them. Now, skyrocketing rent and home prices are making it even harder to use them. In Lexington, Kentucky, Davida Gatewood was doing fine paying her share of the rent. But then her landlord said he would not renew the lease. He wants to renovate and sell the property, which is happening to a lot of people right now. Just landlords wanting to go on and take advantage of the housing market. But the problem is we have nowhere to go. Gatewood's a single mother of six. After the lease wasn't renewed, her Section 8 payments stopped. She's been fighting eviction while looking for another place for seven months. Prices are hundreds of dollars a month higher. The market's so tight, places are snapped up fast. Plus, you think you found something, and then at the bottom of it, it says in bold, no Section 8. So that's extremely discouraging. The country has a massive shortage of affordable housing. The Biden administration is encouraging communities to build more and more densely to help bring down rents. But that's not enough, says Tara Raghavir, a tenant rights advocate with People's Action. At best, a supply-side intervention is going to build housing that shows up in our communities in a couple of years. That doesn't do anything for the millions of tenants who can't afford rent next month. Wherever there's federal funding for housing, she's pushing the administration to make it harder to evict people without cause and harder to raise rents beyond inflation to prices more and more people simply can't pay. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News. Some white person complaining about what Obama's doing. I just simply say, well, why don't you do it? (laughs) You got more power than he has. Because he doesn't have any power except the power that comes from you. And you're standing right next to me. So I don't ask Obama for nothing. I'm asking you. Mm. Why should I go to him when everything that he gets, he gets it from you? So if I want it, I ask you. Yeah, that's what you tell Brian right there on the job. And Brian will say, like he most likely was set up to say, I don't have nothing myself. Say, yeah, well, but you know people who do, because they live next door to you. Mm. Wow. Wow. I can't reach them. You can. (laughs) (laughs) We we just had... Talking about your granddaddy. See, that's what you tell Brian. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, my granddaddy, I mean, you know, he's in, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in Ohio, and he's in, you know, he's down in Texas. So, yeah, right. And if you got anything at all, he helped you to get it. Mm-hmm. Old World War II veteran. He's riding around there retired on his tractor. He helped you, your sister, and everybody else. He put you all through school and all like that. Made the connections, got you that job. Got your cousin that job. Even if you dropped out of school and whatnot, you don't drop very far because you got a safety net. Most white people have a safety net. Mm. They got a network. White adults are over twice as likely as others to get sizable financial help from parents. That is one finding from a new poll by NPR and Harvard University that sheds light on America's stark racial wealth gap. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports. Angela Chaveau and her husband have made a good living in York, Pennsylvania. She's an insurance claims supervisor, and he's in construction. But still, a recent inheritance from her father-in-law has been life-changing. He left them a retirement account, a life insurance policy, an annuity. And her husband and his brother inherited an old farmhouse in a secluded spot with a pond. We were able to buy the property the other half out from his brother at a decent price instead of putting it on, you know, getting it appraised and having to sell it and buy it back. They're renovating that to live in and selling their own house, saying goodbye to 11 more years of payments. We'll be mortgage free at 50 and 59. (laughs) Her father-in-law also left Chaveau's 24-year-old son a money market account. He had given our son some money towards college before he passed, so then this allowed him to pay off the rest of his college debt, which wasn't significant. Her son has invested the rest of his inheritance and plans to use that to help buy a house. 38% of white adults say they've gotten at least $10,000 in gifts or loans from a parent or older relative. That's according to a new poll by NPR, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dorothy Brown is a tax law professor at Georgetown University, and she wishes more white families would talk about these intergenerational benefits. Because you have Black Americans who are doing everything they were told is right and not getting ahead. And they're scratching their heads wondering, how come I'm not doing better than I am? How come I'm not doing better than the guy in the cubicle next to me? The poll finds only 14 percent of Black adults receive similar gifts or loans. The share is 16 percent for Latinos and 19 percent for Native Americans. Brown says this divide reflects a century and more of segregation and systemic racism, including in federal housing policies. So if your grandparent got a home that was FHA insured, it was a result of their being white. You don't think about that, but it was. For African-Americans especially, Brown says the generational wealth transfer is more likely to go the other way. Children helping parents who suffered under Jim Crow. My father died when I was three years old. My mother was a single mother with four sons. Theodore Bailey is 76 and remembers a tough childhood in segregated Nashville. His dad died while he was a military cook in World War II. That led to a major break for Bailey. As a war orphan, he was able to go to college on the GI Bill. It launched his successful career as an engineer and missile designer. And from early on, he helped his mother get by. Yeah, I knew she was struggling, you know, and at the time I didn't have a whole lot to spare, but I'd send her whatever I could. I'd send her some money. 
Now retired in Arizona, Bailey says he's always helped family, bailing out a brother who lost a job, sending grandchildren to college, and others. Oh, (laughs) there's always cousins and nephews and things that want to borrow money, and a lot of times they don't pay back. Research shows family help like this seriously depletes the wealth of college-educated Black Americans. Bailey says he's having to cash out more of his IRA than he'd like to in this bad market to meet his own expenses. When people talk about the American dream, it's here. Robert Blendon is a Harvard professor emeritus of health policy who worked on the new poll. He says you can see the racial wealth gap in lots of its other findings. The large number of Black, Latino, and Native American adults who want to move to better housing expect their children to go to college, but say they can't afford it. These minority communities are either going to have to borrow everything in a very risky environment for that, and they don't have anything that at least help defray some of the costs. What's at stake, he says, is the ability to make the choices that can help families and future generations move ahead. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News. White supremacy is a sickness. During the pandemic, it was common to hear people say they were having a hard time getting into a doctor's office for conditions not related to COVID. Now, a new poll shows those were not idle complaints. The survey is by NPR, the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. It found that of all the American households where anyone has been seriously ill in the past year, about one in five had a hard time getting medical care. And among black Americans, the problem was even worse. NPR's Ritu Chatterjee has more. Back in 2006, Tamika Kimbra Hilton was diagnosed with a uterine fibroid, a non-cancerous mass in her uterus. When I found out about it, it was like, well, we'll just laser it, little outpatient. So I did that, and then it came back. For years, she managed the pain and other symptoms using medication and changes to her lifestyle. Then, in the spring of 2020, her symptoms got worse. But she couldn't get an appointment to see a specialist. The pandemic and the law made everybody in our city shut down unless it's COVID-related. So unless you're dying or you need this to live, you couldn't get an appointment. Two years since, she's still waiting to see a gynecologist. She says she's called multiple practices. Most say they're backed up for months. Others won't take her insurance. Meanwhile, she feels worse than she did two years ago. She feels bloated and nauseous a lot. It makes me want to throw up a lot. It makes me miss work. I miss work um, sometimes one or two days a week, but at least three to four times a month. Kimber Hilson is not alone. Among the Black respondents who had a serious illness in their household in the past year, 24% said they've had trouble getting care. That's compared to only 18% of white respondents who said the same. Mary Findling is the assistant director of the Harvard Opinion Research Program. What's really sad is the racial gaps in healthcare between Black and white Americans has remained. And looking across a broad range of measures, it's better to be a white patient than a Black patient in America today. She says the poll findings also challenged a common assumption about disparities in access to health care. There's been this assumption for minorities that when they can't get care, it's because they can't afford it or they don't have health insurance. But Findling points out that the vast majority of Black respondents who experience problems with access reported being insured. Lauren Salisbury is a health policy researcher at the University of Chicago and was closely involved with the poll. 
She studied how people in black and brown communities have long struggled to access medical care for chronic diseases like cancer and diabetes. Even pre-pandemic, you know, we were seeing challenges with the healthcare delivery system, challenges with financial and economic insecurity. And the pandemic has made those disparities worse, causing delays across the board. We've seen delays in care in multiple types of healthcare services like screenings for individuals. Um, you know, we've seen delays in the initiation of things like chemotherapy or radiation therapy or, or treatments such as that. And studies have found the same disruptions in diabetes, pediatric, mental health care. Dr. Arif Kamal is the chief patient officer at the American Cancer Society. He says millions of women of all racial backgrounds have missed cancer screenings. Over the last two years, we estimate about 6 million women, for example, in a study that we published, have missed routine cancer screening, mammograms for breast cancer, cervical cancer screening through their OBGYN or primary care physician. Now, after two years of financial losses due to the pandemic, health systems are struggling to get back on track with such routine care, especially because they've also been dealing with severe staffing shortages. The healthcare workforce has not been immune to the effects of the Great Resignation. So it may be a while before people are able to access the kind of care they used to before the pandemic. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News. You know, and... Uh... I'll never get after one of our championships. Frank says, hey, Russ, after the season's over, why don't you come down and spend a week with me down in Kentucky? I said, Frank, you're a good guy. There's no way in hell I'm going to go spend a week in Kentucky. (laughs) For many black people in Kentucky and Tennessee, the 8th of August is a special day. In the same spirit as Juneteenth. And as Derek Operly of member station WKMS reports, the regional emancipation celebration was started by the freed slave of a U.S. president. Black communities in Kentucky and Tennessee have been turning out on the 8th of August for over 150 years, marking their freedom from slavery with homecomings, historical remembrances, and usually a good party. West Kentucky native Rhonda Smith grew up celebrating on August 8th, and though Juneteenth is now nationally recognized, she wasn't familiar with the Texas tradition turned federal holiday until pretty recently. I'm 64. I was 63 when I first celebrated Juneteenth, and I wouldn't have done it then if my daughter wasn't cooking fish. (laughs) I wouldn't have got up and went. Historians say August 8, 1863 was the day future U.S. President Andrew Johnson freed his own slaves in Tennessee. Johnson, then military governor of the state, did this because the Emancipation Proclamation earlier that year didn't include Tennessee, which was then under Union control. And Kentucky wasn't included because it was a neutral border state in the Civil War. One of those slaves, Samuel Johnson, organized the first 8th of August event in Greenville eight years later. Here's William Isom, the director of Black in Appalachia, a nonprofit that documents African-American contributions to the Mountain South. There was a parade with Andrew Johnson in attendance and uh, some other elected officials and Samuel Johnson in several newspaper accounts in East Tennessee. He's credited with being the one that spread the 8th of August as Emancipation Day. Historians like Isom and Alistine Turley, the director of the Freedom Stories Project, which focuses on African-American and Appalachian history, think the tradition likely spread as black Appalachians moved out across the region seeking a better life and fleeing racial persecution during the Reconstruction era. 
I think if you look at the exodus or the expulsion of African-Americans from Appalachia, you'll be able to draw pretty much a straight line. These celebrations foster a sense of community among black residents in places like Paducah and Russellville in Kentucky and Knoxville in Tennessee. Marvin Nunn is one of the lead organizers for Paducah's 8th of August festivities, which this year include a parade, a dance, and a block party, among other things. Nunn's family moved from Paducah to Detroit when he was a kid, but he always used to come home for the 8th. Matter of fact, the only time I've missed an 8th of August celebration is when I was in the military and overseas, and I was depressed because I, I, I couldn't make it to Paducah for the 8th of August. I've always done it. Even now, in towns across Kentucky and Tennessee, many black families, schools, and churches are hosting reunions and homecomings. Juneteenth and the 8th of August aren't the only widespread events commemorating black freedom in America. Many black Americans also mark January 1st, the day President Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation went into effect in 1863. No matter what the date, historian William Isom says these celebrations have survived through some of black America's most trying times. People have been celebrating through Reconstruction, through Jim Crow, seasons of racial atrocities, and, and even today in, in the space of like, you know, rampant police violence and murder against black folks and, and Americans. Isom says these regional observances help people to recognize progress, even if there's still a long way to go. For NPR News, I'm Derek Operly in Paducah, Kentucky. Then, oh, Virginia, the state where I was born, carry me back to old Virginia. There's where the cotton and the corn and taters grow. It's been five years since a violent and deadly white nationalist rally shocked Charlottesville, Virginia. One woman was killed and dozens of people were injured when a white supremacist drove his car through a crowd that was resisting the show of hate. Two state police officers who were responding that day were also killed in a helicopter crash. Racial justice activists say the events in Charlottesville marked a turning point that emboldened far-right political violence in the U.S., including the January 6th attack on the Capitol. NPR's Debbie Elliott has this report. Organizers targeted Charlottesville for the Unite the Right rally after the city voted to take down a Confederate statue, part of the town's reckoning with a fraught racial history. On Friday night, August 11, 2017, neo-Nazis, Ku Klux Klansmen, and other white supremacists marched on the University of Virginia campus carrying torches and terrorizing students. The next day, they rallied around the statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee in a downtown park, but were met with resistance from hundreds of residents who rejected racism. Violent clashes ensued. The governor declared a state of emergency and state police shut down the rally. In the name of the Commonwealth, you are commanded to immediately disperse. The move angered alt-right leader and rally organizer Richard Spencer. This is an absolute outrage. You're going to have to drag us out of here. 
As demonstrators were pushed from the park, they dispersed through town, leading to pockets of violence and ultimately the deadly attack on a group of anti-racists. Neo-Nazi James Fields rammed his car into the crowd, injuring dozens of people and killing 32-year-old Heather Heyer. Today, there's a memorial to hire next to the spot where she was killed. Her mother, Susan Bro, visits from time to time. I do. I come to remove dead flowers and make sure that the sidewalk's clear. And to blow kisses, she says. She takes solace in all the messages posted on the brick walls, including gone but not forgotten and don't let hate be louder than love. Yeah, and to see that people still interact with this tells me that it the events of the day still matters. Coming up on the five-year mark since Heather was killed is hard. You know, the moods go up and down. And that's part of this is now I know that this will come, this will go, and I'll be okay. She started an educational foundation in Heather's name and has connected with other families across the country who are victims of hate crimes. They successfully lobbied Congress to pass a hate crime act that calls for stiffer penalties and provides incentives to better track hate crimes. Bro says that's a sign of progress, but she thinks more work is needed to combat a well-organized white supremacist movement a movement she says she wasn't really aware of until her daughter was murdered for standing up to it. Bro says seeing the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th last year confirmed that reality. You don't have to guess so much who's racist, who's white supremacist, although there are some people who think, well, that was an isolated incident and it died down, but it's amazing how often that isolated incident keeps happening. Many activists see the terror here as a turning point for the nation. I think Charlottesville really was a catalyst for much of the white supremacist chaos that has ensued since. April Muniz was in the crowd when the neo-Nazi drove his car into counter-protesters. What I witnessed is something that just broke me, basically. She suffered PTSD and panic attacks and was unable to work for a time. And she grew increasingly frustrated that James Fields was the only person arrested in the immediate aftermath of the Unite the Right violence. Everybody left town. Who's going to be held responsible? And I just kept asking myself over and over as I was watching the days unfold and nothing was happening. And it kind of astounded me. James Fields was convicted on state murder and federal hate crime charges. When no criminal charges were brought against event organizers, some victims of the violence filed a civil lawsuit against about two dozen white nationalist leaders, including Richard Spencer and Jason Kessler. A jury awarded more than $25 million in damages to the plaintiffs, among them April Muniz. Holding organizers to account is an important step, says Ian Solomon, dean of the University of Virginia School of Leadership and Public Policy. But he says it's unclear which direction the country will take. Are the pro-democratic forces, pro-democracy movements going to prevail or not? There's no inevitability to this democratic experiment. Solomon, a former Obama administration official, says what happened in Charlottesville was a warning. One of the things about that weekend of 2017 was it revealed, it re-energized, it revived in many people's minds the reality that anti-democratic forces 
are ascendant in this country, that hate is quite brazen to show its face proudly, confidently, with encouragement from elected officials. At the time, President Trump drew criticism when he talked about, quote, very fine people on both sides, seemingly equating neo-Nazis and white nationalists to the anti-racist demonstrators. Solomon says, while the racial violence in Charlottesville was shocking for some, it was really a familiar refrain. We have a long rhythm in America of progress followed by a backsliding or backlash to that progress. So for many, racial violence is nothing new. Racial intimidation is nothing new. It has a long thread through American history. And yet for many, it was perceived as a wake-up call. It was certainly a wake-up call for Susan Bro, who was forced in the most painful way imaginable to understand the consequences of hate. She's not sure how she'll mark five years since her daughter's murder, but she knows how she'd like the rest of the country to honor Heather's memory. We've got to find a way to get along and have justice. People say we should just go back to getting along. No, because people were not getting treated right in that process. We need to find a way to do both. Community events Friday include a walking vigil of remembrance and an interfaith service called Unite the Light. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Charlottesville, Virginia. Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind As Georgia schools resume classes, they have new laws to follow this year. One of them bans educators from teaching so-called divisive concepts. Martha Dalton reports the law's critics say the language is vague, which is likely to cause confusion. House Bill 1084 bans teachers from covering nine concepts. Some are straightforward. For example, teachers can't say one race is superior to another. Others are more controversial. Educators can't teach that the U.S. is fundamentally racist. Brock Boone with the Southern Poverty Law Center says that language isn't clear. Whenever laws are vague and confusing and teachers and educators face fear of violating something, you know, it has the result of silencing speech. The law's supporters say it doesn't prevent teachers from accurately teaching historical events like the Holocaust or slavery. But Boone says there could be a chill effect, where teachers don't elaborate on the root cause of an event or conflict for fear of breaking the law. Where this law comes into play is if a student asked any potential follow-up question like, why did this happen? Or what does this mean for our country? Why did we do something so terrible? That is where educators have the potential of violating this classroom censorship law. Some lawmakers questioned the need for such a measure as it was working its way through the legislature. Here's Democratic Senator Nan Orrock asking the Senate bill sponsor, Republican Bo Hatchett, about its purpose. What is it that we're trying to stop? Have we got a problem that this is solving? Do we have any evidence that this is occurring in our schools? Thank you to the senator. And I, I think, to your point, 99.99% of Georgian, Georgia teachers would not teach these divisive concepts. Hatchett went on to say the bill was meant to prevent a problem from occurring rather than address an existing one. The law requires every Georgia school district to adopt a complaint resolution process. That could result in more work for school principals. 
They're the ones who have to investigate every complaint, decide if a violation took place, and inform parents of any action within 10 days. Martha Dalton, WABE News. And at the end, toward the end of the dinner, a girl uh, that had been one of the diners pointed out, she said, you know, you're just not what I was looking for. So I asked her, what were you looking for? I knew what she was looking for. She was looking for the horns that had been created by the press. Uh, and those horns mean she was, she was looking for someone who was out to kill all white people, who was a segregationist, a rabble-rouser, an irrational, an extremist, subversive, seditious, someone who couldn't hold a conversation with just anyone. This is what she was looking for, because she was looking for something whose image she only knew from what she had read by a very biased press, a press that had perfected image-making to a science. And then they use these images to make people love whom they will and hate whom they will, uh, not based upon what the people themselves discover for themselves, but based strictly upon the image that the press wants to create and then project to the world. Founded in 1942, Johnson Publishing Company dominated news and entertainment for black communities during the second half of the 20th century. Images of black celebrities, writers, artists, and activists filled the pages of Ebony Magazine and Jet Magazine. Back issues still stand stacked in the corners of Meemaw's living room, or sometimes appear on the side table at your barbershop. This week, ownership of the Ebony and Jet Photo Archive was transferred over to Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture and the Getty Research Institute. This means millions of images, as well as audio and video recordings, will be preserved and made available to the public. Dr. Carla Hayden is the 14th Librarian of Congress and the first African-American and first woman to hold the post. She led a board of experts who helped determine where and how to preserve these archives. Can you remind people why Johnson Publishing and why Ebony and Jet matter so much? Ebony and Jet. Ebony was the, if you think about old magazine, uh, Look Magazine or Life, those full color magazines, the name Ebony, reflecting what it could document. And that was the first time that Black life was documented in such a way with these stories and presenting Black life in all of its form. And then the one jet another color and another on on the range was the smaller kind of pocket size it was in just about every black home business everything and that's where you got the news because at that time when mr johnson started in chicago his publishing company there weren't many positive representations or even coverage of african-american culture and history And so the small one came out every week and that's where you found out who was getting married or who wasn't or what was going on. That's where the news, because a lot of the things that related to African-Americans at that time weren't covered in the mainstream presses. That became the place and you sometimes you would only see it in Jet and you would only see it in Ebony. And he also, though, was significant when he decided to publish in Jet the photo of Emmett Teal, 
the open casket. And he talked about it later that in terms of seeing that photo and Mrs. Till saying, we want, I want everyone to see was a turning point. How did this extraordinary archive of three million photo negatives and slides, nearly a million photos, 9,000 audio and visual recordings, how did this agreement to archive in this way come into being? This agreement was one of the best examples of individuals, institutions, and foundations coming together and saying this archive has to be made accessible, and that's the digitization part of it, as well as made accessible without fee. (laughs) This is free. This will be free to the public. And so you have the National Museum of African American uh, History and Culture, which will be the home of the archive, as well as the Andrew Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, and that's based in Chicago. So there will be a Chicago presence as well to honor that Johnson Publishing started and was based in Chicago, as well as the Getty Foundation that specializes in digitization, all coming together and saying, we have to make sure that this is available to the public. This is no small feat. What is involved in digitizing and preserving such an enormous collection? There's preparatory work. And because this was a archive that was used quite a bit, quite a few of the files and things were already in categories. Some of them are actually in folders and things like that that say sports or baseball or things like that. So that makes it easier because you have to sort through all of the things. And then you physically have to take the materials and I think when listeners think about uh, photocopying and those types of things, so there's actual handling of the materials and putting them into a digital format. That's the bulk of the work. But once it gets going and once it's up there, it's going to be wonderful. I know that there will be exhibits and different programming along the way so that people can get a sense and a taste of the archive. Talk to me about this open sourcing. You've, you've said a few words, but I, I would want to understand how you're imagining that people are going to use it. Think about students that are doing projects. They will be able to download and incorporate the images and the sounds, all types of film that might be available and create their own projects. You'll be able to have people who can use it for decorating. (laughs) You know, if you want an iconic photo to enlarge and just put in your own home or in your school or anywhere, also think about the research that could happen as well. You will have students as well as faculty members that are going to mine that collection and pull out things. One of the projects that's already been mentioned had to do with the fact that the Johnson Publishing and they would cover drag presentations in the Black community. And there's a scholar that wants to document the history of drag in the Black community. 
I've enjoyed seeing some of the photos that have been chosen just in the media announcements about this. So there's this uh, incredible one of James Brown. But are there others that for you, I mean, obviously it's an enormous collection, but that have stood out as like this, this is now available. Think about the photo of Mrs. Coretta King at the funeral with her daughter Bernice right there. And you see the agony, the dignity, and everything there. And captures that. And that's a photo that's been seen for decades, but captures so much. And you can also have photos of just pure joy with Muhammad Ali. Hmm. <laughs> and and uh, those types of moments in the lives of people that we now think of as iconic. From Sammy Davis Jr. to Duke Ellington to Eartha Kitt, all of these people, you could see them in their glory and learn more about them. Dr. Carla Hayden, 14th Librarian of Congress. Thank you for your time on The Takeaway. Thank you. We're going to have some of those images up on our Instagram, so check them out. Simple fact is, Anderson, we got two cultures down here. White culture and the colored culture. Now, that's the way it always has been. That's the way it always will be. The rest of America don't see it that way, Mr. Mayor. The rest of America don't mean jack shit. You in Mississippi now. And Lauren, Steve, we spent tonight getting reaction from the Duke researcher whose work shed new light on Emmett Till's case and also from activists who've long fought for justice in the lynching. We also tried to reach Carolyn Donham and her family, who we know lived here in Raleigh for several years, but haven't spoken on the record in over a decade. Is this the end of the story? What happened today? I don't think Emmett Till's story is going to let go of us anytime soon. Tim Tyson last spoke to Carolyn Donham in 2008, but the story he told in his book, The Blood of Emmett Till, shined new light on the 14-year-old's brutal murder in Mississippi in 1955 and Donham's role leading up to Till's lynching. Today, nearly 70 years after Donham's accusation that the black teenager whistled at her, triggering the boy's lynching, a Mississippi grand jury declined to indict Donham, now 88 years old. I was not expecting uh, them to an indictment. She's the last person living. Most of the evidence has disappeared. I'm not sure it's a very strong uh, concrete case of concrete evidence. The prosecutable evidence. Tyson questions whether Donham was telling him the truth when she told him her then-husband, Roy Bryant, and his half-brother brought Till to their home after kidnapping the boy, and when they asked if he was the one who whistled and grabbed her, she told them no and to return him. She told Tyson it was Till who spoke up and admitted to breaking the old racist social codes of the South. Now, I don't any more believe that than I believe in the tooth fairy. It seems preposterous. I don't think it's that difficult of a case to indict. Criminal justice reform activist Don Blagrove, also an attorney, was vocal earlier this summer when a long-lost arrest warrant for Donham was discovered inside a Mississippi courthouse basement. Blagrove and others wanted Wake County Sheriff's deputies to arrest Donham in Raleigh and return her to Mississippi to face the charges. Because what we've seen is that in our, in our criminal justice system, if there is a political will to get an indictment, it is not hard to get one. We just did not have folks who were willing um, to see the value in Emmett Till's life. 
So where is Carolyn Donham right now? We know she was living with her son at his home in Raleigh for several years, but we also know now that the family has since moved out of that house. The Daily Mail reporting earlier this month that the family is now living together in a small apartment community in Kentucky. Steve, Lauren? That's right. We're moving to Mississippi, and you know how that spell. M I crooked letter, crooked letter I, crooked letter, crooked letter I, hook back, hook back I. <laughs> we begin tonight in Macomb, a developing story where a very active social media video shows a Mississippi Highway patrolman arresting a man. Some are calling this video alarming. Take a look. Just wait. Man, don't grab my, hey man, don't, don't do that Hey, I got him on lie. I got him on lie. I got his on lie. I got his on lie. He got a handcuff, man. You said you ain't had no business jumping on him. You ain't had no business jumping on him. Look at this. Look at this, man. Look at this, y'all. Look at this. He got again. He got on handcuffs. He got on handcuffs. He got on handcuffs. He got on handcuffs. Well, Darius Lewis, Eugene Lewis, and Packer Lewis were all arrested on the scene. In an exclusive interview with 12 News, Eugene Lewis, the man in the video seen in handcuffs, says if his brothers wouldn't have arrived in time, he is not sure what would have happened. And it started because it started, the man stopped me, right? When he stopped me, he, he pulled me over. When he pulled me over, he was like, um, put your hands out the car. I said, man, ain't that shit. Here go my hand, bro. It ain't nothing. So when he got me on out the car, he was like, do you smoke? I said, no. He said, do you drink? I said, I drink, but I hadn't had a drink today. So he ain't find nothing. So when he coming back to the car, he didn't find nothing. He said, you go on me. I said, go on with you for what? He said, you go on me because... You said you smoke weed, and um, you were doing 35 in a 30, curly drive. Get in the car. I said, man, you know what? That's that racist coming at you right now. When I said that, he automatically hit me under my throat. Ooh, I, can't, I, I can't never let this go because I ain't did nothing to him. And I know this same white guy will get out here and do another black guy. Like that, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't nobody around. Ain't no telling where you'll get to me. Well, now we turn to District 98, Representative Daryl Porter Jr. Representative Porter, I know you've seen the video. Look, I'll just get right to it. What do you think? Well, after watching the video initially, I do realize that there are a lot of things leading up to what we see that we don't know. But from what we do see, I can't say that it is a bit, of, a bit alarming. Yes, sir. And what steps are you taking at this point as a state representative? Well, as a state representative, I do have a good uh, working relationship with the commissioner of public safety, Commissioner Tyndall. And so I reached out to him and he and I had a lengthy conversation about the video. And he's assured me that an investigation is being done by the Mississippi Department, uh, excuse me, the Mississippi uh, Bureau of Investigation, as well as internal affairs. So we can not only rectify the situation, but to prevent a situation like this from occurring in the future. Thank you, Representative Porter. Well, MHP released a statement to 12 News regarding the incident. Quote, 
On Friday, August 5th, 2022, the Mississippi Department of Public Safety was made aware of an incident involving a Mississippi Highway Patrolman conducting an arrest on a subject in Macomb, Mississippi. This incident is being reviewed internally by the Department of Public Safety. The Mississippi Bureau of Investigation is also conducting an inquiry. Now, the video is trending online with more than 249,000 views and close to 3,000 comments. The mayor for the city of Macomb says he was disturbed at the first sight of the video. Because the Mississippi Highway Patrol is out of my jurisdiction, that is a state agency, uh, I contacted him in reference to this uh, to inquire whether or not I could encourage him to asked them to do an internal investigation. I was informed today that, uh, yes, the agency will be doing an internal investigation. Uh, this is alarming that something like this would happen within the city limits of Macomb. Now, this is an ongoing investigation, and you can stay with 12 News and WJTV.com for the latest. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me, and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. On this day in 2014, that Michael Brown was fatally shot by a white police officer at the Canfield Apartments in Ferguson. Eight years later, police associations are suing St. Louis City to block a newly formed civilian oversight of the police department. They argue it violates state law. It comes just days after Mayor Tashara Jones signed Board Bill 47 launching the division. The board would independently investigate reported cases of officer misconduct and use of force. The mayor's office says they won't comment on the lawsuit. They say yachting is America's number one sport. You don't never see none of us yachting, do you? Uh-uh, after that first big boat ride, uh-uh, we kind of lost our taste for sailing. <laughs> That's a little slavery humor right there. <laughs> The Vincent police chief and assistant chief are on leave tonight, facing termination after a racially insensitive text message surfaced. WVTM 13's Chip Scarborough is live in Shelby County tonight to explain the action already taken and what's next. Chip? Sherry, the Vincent City Council already voted to suspend both the police chief and the assistant police chief with pay. And in the meantime, the Shelby County Sheriff's Office here will be handling all law enforcement duties in the city of Vincent. City leaders in Vincent will vote to fire both Police Chief James Srigley and Assistant Police Chief John Goss at the next scheduled council meeting August 16th. This comes as several racially insensitive text messages began circulating. I'm a supporter of law enforcement. You know, I, I just think they're awesome. They put themselves, they're first responders and, and they deserve a tremendous amount of respect from the public and the people that they serve. But they also have a tremendous responsibility when they serve the public to maintain their integrity. The city council will then vote to completely dissolve the Vincent Police Department. The Shelby County Sheriff's Office released this statement about temporarily handling law enforcement response in Vincent. It says the sheriff's office condemns the alleged racist behavior and stands ready to respond to whatever necessary. And it's hard to have someone to serve the public with that type of mentality and that and that attitude. Uh, when it comes to race relations and serve. So we feel that they lose the right and the respect of the community to continue to serve in that position. It's too soon to say for sure what the permanent solution would be for having a law enforcement agency in Vincent. 
One possibility is the city creating a long-term agreement with the Shelby County Sheriff's Office. Benson is a wonderful little town. We always call it the gateway uh, to Shelby County from the east. And the president of the Shelby County NAACP tells me residents plan to meet separately next week ahead of the August 16th meeting. We'll certainly keep you posted on all those details. I also want to let you know I reached out to both the mayor and the city council today for interviews. The mayor politely declined. I'm still waiting to hear back from members of the city council tonight. Live in Shelby County, Chip Scarborough, WVTM 13. First, we'll turn our attention to Marion County and claims of racism in the middle school last semester. The mother of a Jasper Middle School student says her daughter and four friends were called racial slurs and threatened to be shot and killed. Wow! Hey, yo, drama, hold up, son. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> Just give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. The mother of a Jasper Middle School student says her daughter and four friends were called racial slurs and threatened to be shot and killed. And nothing was done about it. Riley Nagel has been looking into the allegations and has the story. Riley. Greg, Samantha Robinson tells me her 12-year-old daughter hasn't felt safe at school since she and her friends started getting harassed back in February. Robinson says she's pleaded to the Marion County School Board to do something about it. At this point, we just need to hold the adults and the child accountable for what happened. Robinson says it all started on the playground in February while her sixth grade daughter and her friends were playing football. Her daughter told her members on the other team were calling them the N-word while playing. The daughter said one boy was the main bully who threatened her during the game. When our kids are winning the game is when he decides to say, back in the day, you would have been shot for that. Robinson says following the incident, the alleged bully was suspended, but when he returned to school, the racial slurs and threats kept coming. After a third incident in May, Robinson and several parents reached out to the Marion County School District Superintendent, Mark Griffin. Griffin told Robinson the student would be expelled and would not be coming back to Jasper Middle School in the fall. So Friday was the first day of school, and he was behind me in line when I was dropping my daughter off at school. Feeling frustrated, on Monday, Robinson and several parents went to the Marion County School Board meeting asking why no steps have been taken to fix the situation. They have nothing to say. Nothing. There's literally nothing they said. Robinson isn't the only mother who says they're struggling with their child being bullied at Jasper Middle School. Allison Rich tells us she tried to talk to the principal about her daughter being harassed, but after nothing was done, she decided to transfer her daughter to another school. I just couldn't, as a mother, keep sending my child to that school. She, was, she didn't want to go to school. We reached out to Superintendent Griffin, who says for legal reasons he can't address a specific situation, but as a general statement said, racism will not be tolerated at Jasper Middle School, and they will be investigating the allegations. The board and myself were committed to do whatever steps necessary to take make sure that every student is treated with respect. 
Robinson tells all the parents whose children are being bullied to keep their head up and continue to reach out to their school. I'm hoping that you and I will receive some type of resolution. Superintendent Griffin mentioned they will be conducting a school climate survey to see if there are any other issues they need to address. Reporting live in studio, I'm Riley Nagel, Local 3 News. White people got more in common with colored people than they do with rich people. We just got to eliminate them. Eliminate. Eliminate. Who, rich people? White people. Damn. Black people too. Brown people, yellow people. Get rid of them all. All is a voluntary, free-spirited, open-ended program of procreative racial deconstruction. Everybody just got to keep fucking everybody till they're all the same color. I think it's... Uh... Now police making an arrest four months after a man was stabbed to death in a Miami apartment. Officers taking the victim's OnlyFans model girlfriend into custody, saying she's the one that killed him. Local 10's Rosh Lowe joins us live from Miami with the disturbing developing details. Rosh. This case will come down to one thing, and it will be fascinating to see this play out. Was this a case of self-defense or not? The video, say prosecutors, shows Courtney Clenny punching her boyfriend, Christian Obamselli, in a private elevator heading to their luxury apartment in Edgewater. Just over a month later, prosecutors say, Clenny stabbed Obamselli to death. The knife entered Christian's chest in a downward angle to, to the depth of three inches. Clenny goes by the name Courtney Taylor on social media. She is an OnlyFans model who had millions of followers. The arrest warrant spells out a tumultuous relationship with domestic violence on both sides. Their building staff and security documented so many incidents of arguments that management was moving to evict them. On the day in question, April 3rd, prosecutors say Clenny called her mom, who was on the phone at the time of the incident, they say. In the call to 911, Obamselli can be heard saying he is dying and Clenny saying, I'm so sorry, baby. But it gives restored hope that even though delayed, justice will still come. Detectives spent months looking into whether or not this was a case of self-defense. Clenny said she was thrown to the ground. Cops say there was no physical evidence of this. Clenny also said she threw a knife at Obamselli from 10 feet, according to police. But the medical examiner's office said a knife thrown at this distance would not have caused the fatal wound. In the arrest warrant, Clenny tells police, quote, I do not think that this was, I don't know. I really don't know if this was justified at all. Clenny has been charged with second-degree murder. It's important to point out, although we stress that video and the state stresses the video, they say that is only a piece of the overall puzzle here. And you heard me mention the other areas of their concern. As far as Clenny goes, she is still in Hawaii awaiting her first appearance in court. She is expected to waive extradition and will appear in court here in South Florida in the upcoming days. Of course, we'll follow this case for you. For now, we are live outside the Miami-Dade State Attorney's Office. I'm Rosh Lowe, Local 10 News. The Turner Diaries sold over half a million copies. Who do you think is buying it? Eric Rudolph, the Olympic bomber, Wade Page, who shut up the Sikh temple, Larry Ford, developing typhoid and cholera, William Carr with the cyanide bomb, anthrax, ricin, botulism, C4, IEDs. I could go on like this for hours, and all of them are white supremacists.
Attorney General Merrick Garland condemned the violent threats directed at the Department of Justice and the FBI. And now we're learning more about an attack on an FBI office in Cincinnati that started yesterday morning. Authorities say an armed man tried to breach the FBI building there before fleeing. And after a standoff, police shot and killed him. A lot of details in this case are still murky. NPR's Tom Dreisbach is here to help clear things up. Tom, what do we know about what happened? Well, NPR has confirmed with sources that the suspect's name in this case is Ricky Schiffer. Public records indicate he's 42 years old. The FBI said he was armed when he tried to enter an FBI building uh, through a visitor screening center. An alarm went off. FBI special agents then responded, and Schiffer fled. The Ohio State Highway Patrol said he was driving a Ford Crown Victoria. There was a chase. Eventually, they came to a stop by the side of the road in a rural area. The gunman then shot at the police and took cover behind the car. And for about the next six hours, there was a standoff and unsuccessful attempts at negotiation. Then in the afternoon, the police claimed that he raised a gun. Then police shot and killed him. Any word on his motive? Well, it's still very early. There are some possible indications. Social media accounts under his name, though I should say we have not independently confirmed that they belong to this suspect, but they are under his name and they indicate that he was with the pro-Trump protesters outside the Capitol during the attack on January 6, 2021. He has not been charged, though, in connection with the Capitol riot. This week, since the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, though, and this account under his name on the Trump-backed social media site Truth Social posted many times, and not long after Schiffer was identified in this incident, those posts were removed. We were able to gather screenshots before then. All right, so social media accounts under his name, what else did they say? Well, that Truth Social account I mentioned said specifically that he wanted to cause violence in response to the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago. It said, quote, I am proposing war and, quote, kill the FBI on site. He also compared the FBI to the Gestapo, the Nazi secret police. He referenced other motivations, including the Alex Jones defamation case, the fact that former White House advisor Steve Bannon might go to jail for contempt of Congress. He said that 1776, the American Revolution, of course, was for far less. Now, shortly after the attack on the FBI office, this account posted, quote, I thought I had a way through bulletproof glass, and I didn't. If you don't hear from me, it's true. I tried attacking the FBI. You know, we've seen some uh, violent and extremist rhetoric uh, since the FBI Mm -hmm. searched Mar-a-Lago. Where does this fit in? Well, all week I've been talking with extremism researchers about what they're seeing, and it's been a lot of similar talk, talk of arming up another civil war. And researchers told me that the level of violent rhetoric is similar to what we saw just before January 6th. Here's Heidi Byrick. She's the co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. There's almost a hysteria of violence coming out of these far-right circles in reaction to the search at Mar-a-Lago. And given those parallels with the run-up to January 6th, what we know is a lot of people who went on to storm the Capitol talked about their plans in plain sight, and law enforcement, government agencies just did not take the threat seriously enough. So experts like Byrick are sounding the alarm now. And where are you seeing these kinds of comments? Well, some of it is happening on extremist forums, but I should say that it is not just the fringe making this kind of extreme rhetoric. The former White House advisor Steve Bannon went on Alex Jones's show this week, the conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, and he compared the FBI to the Gestapo himself. He said without any apparent basis that the government might actually be trying to kill Trump. I do not think it's beyond this administrative state and their deep state apparatus to, to actually try to Uh, work on the assassination of President Trump. 
Now, he specifically told his followers not to be violent, but before yesterday's attack, I talked to Alex Friedfeld with the Anti-Defamation League, and he said Bannon was playing a dangerous game. When you tell a story like that of the other side being willing to go to any lengths to harm the country, they're essentially laying the dots out there for their listeners to connect. And when you connect those dots, it becomes far more plausible to use violence. Bannon told NPR in a statement, quote, his show's mantra is investigate, litigate, incarcerate. There is no place for violence as we have the votes and the political muscle to win elections. NPR's Tom Dreisbach. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Albert Woodfox, Angola Free Warrior, passes. Who has not heard of the Angola Three? Three young black prisoners who were falsely accused of killing a prison guard in 1972 in the infamous Louisiana maximum security prison cited at a former slave plantation and named for the place where the African captives came from, Angola. On Thursday, August 4th, attorneys for Albert Woodfox announced his passing at the age of 75. For over 43 years, Woodfox and several other black men were held in brutal solitary confinement, one of the longest held solitary prisoners on earth. 43 years, seven days a week, 23 hours a day. The United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture has stated that any time above 13 days constitutes torture and a violation of international law. 13 days, 43 years. How did Woodfox survive? He cites the teachings of the Black Panther Party, books by Franz Fanon, Malcolm X, and Marcus Garvey. And lastly, the daily work they did for decades of calling down the tear to quiz guys on black history, on math and spelling bees. In an interview in The Guardian, Woodfox said, our cells were meant to be death chambers, but we turned them into school, into debate halls. By keeping their minds alive, they kept the beast of madness at bay. After a bitter court fight, Woodfox was freed in 2016, and he returned to the remnants of his family. His daughter Brenda and her children and grandchildren greeted his return. He wrote a book entitled Solitary and spoke at colleges around the world about his time in Angola. In his last six years of freedom, he thought more and more of his mother, Ruby Mabel Hamlin, who died while he was in Angola. He called her his true hero. She was, he said, functionally illiterate. But he added, I never saw a look of defeat in her face, no matter how hard things got. I grew into my mother's wisdom. I carry it within me. Albert Wood Fox returns to his ancestors. 
and love, not fear. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, August 13, 2022. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, questions, counter racist suggestions. The number 720. 720- Seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. The number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Email until justice at gmail dot com. Not for spectators. Uh, we'll get to folks if you have observations, thoughts to share. I uh, even get to some of the emails uh, that folks wrote in as well uh, before we get to all of that one we should be here on Wednesday uh, normal time 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific uh, all of the cows programs unless specified otherwise are at 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific that is our time compensatory call in is obviously one hour later but 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific that's when we air unless otherwise specified 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific will be here this Wednesday speaking with a white man as usual white guests only looking forward to it more on that later maybe Uh, let's see we are listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the program is constructive visit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com once you hit the blog PayPal button is in the top right corner just beneath the button you'll see links for cash app Venmo as well as PayPal the address for cash app is cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows enormous thanks to all of the folks who have invested all over the world uh, kept the cows rolling for 13 plus years hopefully we have been worthy of your time and energy and more often than not provided accurate constructive information on what white supremacy racism is and how it works you can also support visit our wish list at amazon.com it is listed under Gus T Renegade much obliged for all the folks who have nabbed an item or three uh, over the past 13 plus years again hopefully 
the cows has been worthy of your time, energy, provided accurate information on what it means to be classified as white. Let's see. Uh, next, so I, one last thing before I get to one of the emails. So, Neely Fuller Jr., uh, he has uh, in his writing his concept of compensatory investment requests. I think that should be one thing separates the cows from many, if not all the other programs to have many, many years of live on the air compensatory investment requests of whites where we've gotten a number of things. So I have failed thus far to get a white person to take up on my request to get bus uh, Gus funded to get to Buffalo. However, this is why I thought like, hey, should ask to see if a white person will fund me to get to Buffalo because that's not really, you know, regardless of what they have said thus far, that's not really that big of a deal uh, for individuals classified as white. Really, even for a number of individuals who are not white, it's just, I mean, that's not a spaceship. You know, that's not a house (laughs) to go. I mean, you could really do it up and do like first class. Well, one thing I will say, don't you be mistaken just because Gus has made this request a number of times, been talking about it for, I guess, months now, going to Buffalo and all of that. Don't be mistaken and think, oh, Gus is just on the slide, like trying to get a little sneak trip to Buffalo, like he on the sneak likes the bills or whatever. He found some hookup on some O.J. Simpson memorabilia. Or he got on Tinder and found some little nice tenderoni or whatever. All the way through. We can fast forward all that. They don't even offer direct flights from Seattle to Buffalo. That, for me, tells you all you need to know about Buffalo. Who in their right mind is going to trade Seattle for Buffalo any time of the year? Anyway, this is strictly business trip. Don't even put me in first class. Put me in a business class because that's all this is I'm going to tell you how business this is so once I made my requests and everybody said no thus far but I said I'm going to keep it up because I don't really think this is that big of a request lo and behold what I thought cow's listener victim no less back of the bus victim says oh man I got flyer miles like gee whiz if you still want to go to Buffalo like pick a date man let's roll which is what I thought like white people got you want to talk about flyer miles like man race soldiers got flyer miles for lifetimes buddy go to Buffalo Singapore where where are we going today anyway so at this point now I'm just making compensatory investment requests for let me find a cool place to stay for my two weeks of research Uh, and then listeners 
you are maybe I and other folks that I've asked thus far like trying to pick when is a good time to go like there might be some other events that are happening in Buffalo that I can check out for counter racist purposes like maybe they're going to have a talk or something or uh, like I guess it would have been cool maybe if I could have been there when they reopen the tops maybe eh. but if they're going to have like something at the tops or some other event uh, it's going to be taking place even something trial related with Peyton Gendron the only thing is Gus T does not do cold weather like I think anything under 55 Fahrenheit is cold so Gus that would be another reason Gus is not excited about going to Buffalo this would have to be a before November like I would have to be headed back before Halloween I don't know if anything cool happens in Buffalo on so-called Halloween maybe you know go at the end of the month and see what it's like if it's not too cold but it would have to be sooner than later we could definitely go in October I think but I certainly am not going to be there when it snows or anytime after November like if it has to be if we wait too long and November December comes that is eh, all of that I'm not getting there and being stuck and or having to uh, you know shovel to walk to get it and so <laughs> if we can't get there before October had to be wait till next year and go sometime in the spring like forward of April so which I don't know maybe that would be better trial might be happening then who knows have to see but uh, I was thinking hey let's do it now who knows you know anything could happen between now and then let's do it sooner than later so people can be looking anything cool happening in Buffalo in September early October mid-October late October if you find any events the only thing in fact Buffalo is so lame which I already knew all the research that we've done I haven't seen any redeeming qualities about Buffalo like at all uh, Buffalo is so lame. I can't even say I normally would feel some type of way like, oh, what if we got listeners in Buffalo? It'd be like, apologize. You live in Buffalo. You know it's lame. The only thing I've located thus far in terms of events a listener sent to me, it was a Buffalo wing eating contest. <laughs> what in the world? <laughs> I was cracking up laughing like, what am I going to do at a chicken eating contest? as a vegan <laughs> what in the whoo man let me hurry up and get I would just be looking at my watch counting down the hours until we can get back to Seattle get out of western New York I don't even like New York City much less Buffalo like my gosh anywho so if you have some free time what is happening in Buffalo end of the summer early autumn 2022 if you find anything cool Drop it to Gus T until justice at gmail.com. All righty. Uh, email. Listener uh, last week, victim of racism. Uh, she emailed. She was talking about an experience uh, with her daughter being uh, potentially accosted by this white woman when she was out just trying to enjoy a little so-called free time on the plantation and we talked about you know the importance of sharing this information with your children how dangerous it is there are lots of perverts and all the rest of it Woody Allen Jerry Sandusky and all of that following up this week uh, hi Gus and callers apologies for this being a bit long but hopefully it becomes clear why I think this issue is important I wrote last week about my daughter's Gisseline Maxwell-esque experience 
Not sure if this is a metaphor considering what happened is real, and you asked about how parents can speak to their children about keeping safe. My daughter is over 21 years old, so technically an adult and allowed out by herself. I would hope so. I would take her pretty much everywhere when she was younger, under 16, but as they get older, they travel around by themselves or with friends. I did allow her to go to the library with her friend after school, and I would pick them up and drop her friend home in my car. You mentioned parents steering their children towards jobs in libraries and such places as they are safer, and I agree. However, there are still dangers. My daughter and her friend were about 13 years old, dressed in school uniform and quite small for their age. So no ambiguity, 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 sorry, about them being children. They were seated at the end of a bookshelf that had very low armchairs for people to sit down. I could tell they were doing everything I expected of them. Homework. As I walked towards them from behind, I saw a man bending down on one knee talking to them. Clearly, the situation was suspect especially his body language he was on the side of my daughter's friend and I could see she was uncomfortable I walked slowly towards them so that I could hear what he was saying it was a Friday so I had dressed down for works jeans and like my daughter people think I'm a lot younger than my age Clearly, it did not occur to this pedophile that I was their parent as he looked up at me, did a quick assessment, and decided it was okay for him to continue his conversation in my presence. This, despite the fact that the girls by that point had started packing their bags, had started packing their school bags to leave. This happened around the time a famous black celebrity was in court on child sexual abuse charges so this manipulative sleazy mofo used this as an excuse to lead them into a sexual conversation by asking them what they felt about the situation at that point I heard enough and interrupted him asking how old he was he was stunned and irritated by my question my question but answered 34. I raised my voice so that we were overheard by the other people in the library asking him why a 34-year-old man is speaking to schoolgirls in the library. He asked me what it had to do with me, still oblivious to the fact that there was clearly a connection to at least one of the girls. I let him know which one was my daughter. He had a shocked look on his face and jumped, claiming he wasn't doing anything. I kept asking him why he was talking to little girls in the library to embarrass him and make sure everyone around understood he was a pedophile. He then quickly made his way out of the library. And... This is the challenge for parents. What do you tell your children and how? 
I've come to realize that you have to be honest and vulnerable with your children or they think you are just nagging and ignore you. Timing is also important and each parent will need to judge when certain conversations are important enough to have. I'm not saying that I'm perfect at this by any means. Who of us is? My parents taught me right from wrong in their own way and were very protective, sometimes without lots of details, but I understood that their goal was to keep me safe. I know my parents did their best and hopefully my daughter will do better than I have done. I was very quiet and innocent compared to some of the children I grew up with and knew I had to behave even if my parents were not around and what everyone else was getting up to. I was a child, but when I think back to some of the very dangerous people that approached me as a child, simply on my way to and from school, which I never told my parents about, I realized that I have to speak to my daughter. Luckily, I was never harmed, but things could have been different. So, I speak honestly to my daughter even when I feel embarrassed and she listens most of the time and speaks to me about things that worry her. It wasn't always this way. It takes time and growth on both sides. Her dad reiterates the message that is phenomenal, super important, where you can have both parents reiterating, supporting, substantiating what the other person said. Maybe they say it in different ways, so they get to hear the same message articulated differently, but everybody is saying the same thing, being reinforced. Love it. That that generally is something that is best accomplished by having lots of great conversations, the guy and the gal, well in advance of the bedroom. Let's see. Lost my place here. Okay. Uh, do not leave a vacuum in your child's life. Wait a minute. Okay. Even though we are not together, he tells her what she needs to know and she listens. Didn't miss the last sentence. Okay. Do not leave a vacuum in your child's life where they believe friends and external people are where they feel they need to go for advice. Personal, general, workplace, etc. And changing the subject to workplace matters, I mentioned yesterday that it was the last time I would write about incompetent carry so I can manage the anger and resentment I am feeling. There were a few things I forgot to report. Then this will be the last time unless something really horrendous occurs. We had a senior management team meeting on Thursday, which got moved to lunchtime. I did not read my diary properly, so I arrived late as I was at lunch. They had been discussing various issues, probably including me, relating to ways of working. 
This is when I learned about two white males that have been working when they want. I feel like we heard this before. We've been talking about white people being lazy in the workplace and not even following the rules. They just come in when they want to work whenever they feel like it all the time. Uh, Early that morning, Carrie had put a meeting in my diary, which involved my manager and two other people. I already had a meeting in my diary, which she clearly ignored. I checked diaries and there were times in everyone's diary when we could meet. So no need to ignore my plans. You always check people's availability. So it was deliberate. And it is not the first time this has happened. I emailed and asked her to find another slot. Half an hour passed with a without a response. So I emailed everyone and suggested another time. At that point, she sent an updated invite. I had a one-to-one meeting with my racist manager later that afternoon and she thanked me for pushing back on the meeting arrangements. Disingenuous. That is whites at their best. Fake, 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 fake. Otherwise known as tacky. I had also suggested waiting until next week when the non-white black female who allegedly reports to me returns from leave as she will lead on the project we will be discussing. We all, she doesn't count either, so, you know, whatever. <laughs> we also talked about ways of working, and I said that I asked for the meeting to be moved as people tend to ignore times in my diary blocked out so I can focus. She acknowledged that she had been guilty of the same thing. Disingenuous. I fully expect it to happen again. That is the correct way to think because as you already stated it's deliberate they love to do this sort of thing and it's both ways so that they put it at this time now you got all this craziness on your end like oh man now I gotta scramble and move this around and move that around and all the rest of it or miss the meeting so they can oh gosh she doesn't care and oh missed you at the meeting today where we talked about you for about half of the time doesn't get any better than tacky disingenuous that's all it is but I think that's so important this will continue to happen and you just point that out like hey that's why we have all this newfangled gadgetry right so you can check everybody's schedule that's not you know PhD intelligence just to look at the calendar where the spots where everybody is available you could do that easily nah is the nigger gonna be oh okay Pow, that's when we do it where the Negroes occupy. <laughs> and then she doesn't even respond to the email. You send out and have to do all this and begging and running around and contacting everybody else. And then she sends out the updated invite. That is not ignorance at all. Not even close. Much obliged. Going back just to talking about your children, I think that is so important in terms of being. Uh, vulnerable honest age appropriate certainly you know the conversation that you have with an 8, 9, 10 year old probably will sound or I hope would sound quite different than the conversation or when you continue maybe this conversation with a 16 year old 17 year old, 21 year old but make sure talk to them and let them know it is so just wow I mean the library type of a situation you know just Man, school, we hear, I mean, no place is safe on the plantation. So, yeah, 
Uh, and even with these conversations, it's probably the sort of thing that you will have to have with them sooner than you would like. I say that as someone who is not a parent at all. But that seems like one of one of those that I don't think most parents are going to be like, oh, this is going to be the greatest day ever when I get to talk to them about all the rampant child raping, fondling father Freemans on the plantation. Like, that just doesn't seem like fun. Like, man, can we wait a little bit? Like, man, they're so young and ugh, you got to burden them with all this and what you want them to do and why this is so important and why you got to come and talk to them about this in in such a serious manner. That is my general suspicion. You're probably going to have to have this conversation with them sooner than you would like. Anyway, blame usual suspects for that as well. Uh, let's see a uh, few things and then we'll get to the folks who dialed in much obliged to the mom who dialed in and absolutely continuing to talk to and share information with your children well after they are 18 like that is you know lifetime job being a mommy and attempted and daddy attempted lifetime occupation hardest on the planet and uh, kudos for doing your best and just being honest, you know, and, and given, trying to give as many details as possible, details related to the system of white supremacy, making it so unsafe for us. They don't care about children, that too, making sure that they get that. And even that's one that you can be pointing out all the time because it's so ubiquitous. I didn't think about that before. I didn't process it, but I mean, it's it's rampant in the news that's why we just had that report in Alabama they got all that rampant child abuse down in Alabama abusing children that are younger than her daughter a young lady who wrote in and what have you rampant Uh, just point that out movies and, and all the rest of it the way the flagrant disregard for children that is constantly on display they brag about not taking their own uh, taking care of their own children the help brag about that sort of thing anyway other uh, items and then we'll get to other emails as well let's see Uh, the email uh, or not the email excuse me Uh, some of the news items that we heard uh, quickly I'll get to some of these later but the report where they talked about white people getting lots of help that you want to talk about disingenuous that is not surprising that has been known for a long time. You can go back in the cows archives. Uh, we had Thomas Shapiro as a guest on the program. We talked about his book, the hidden cost of being African American. Uh, we also, uh, we had, there are many authors, I think more than five. We had two of them. Uh, Betsy Leandar, Wright. She is classified as white. I believe it admitted racist minimum suspected, but she might have admitted to being a racist on the program, but the book The Color of Wealth, it has all of those details, and that book is old. That book at at this point, I suspect The Color of Wealth is probably close to 20 years old. Maybe older than that, but they all of that information is in that book about white people having a safety net metaphor, uh, white people having parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and neighbors uh, who can give them money and job? That's how you can have incompetent carry, 
because incompetent Carrie's incompetent mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and aunt and uncle, hey, they've been practicing racism, white supremacy for generations. So they got all their loot stored up. They got it. No problem. You heard Mr. Fuller said that, hey, they drop out of school. No problem. No, Mark Furman. No big deal. Pay for that down payment on the house. Oh, you lost your job. Take over the payments for the next five years. No problem. Need a new car. Down payment on the car. No problem. May buy it outright for you. No problem. And then have the audacity to sit around and tell black you moochers. You just want a hand out here, hand out there. That's all you talk about. Moochers, that's it. Just looking for somebody to do something for you. What is, what's, the, what's the old tacky line of pull yourself up by your bootstrap? Your grandfather, he gave you the bootstraps, the boots, pajamas, the job, the car, and the house note. Matter of fact, he paid the whole house. Come on. Come on. Tell me something. Let's see. I think $10,000 is a lie too. They said that it was, I think at least 30% of white people said that they got at least $10,000 in terms of cash or house payment, something like that. I suspect that's probably a lie. It's probably way more than that for large numbers of white people. Huge numbers. $10,000 is nothing. Uh, Let's see. For white people. Uh, let's see. That's why I said the Buffalo, like, come on, get to Buffalo is nothing. Uh, the I normally we have a rule not playing reports. Melissa Harris Perry victims guaranteed qualified. But I feel like the victims guaranteed qualified. I just don't play her reports. They talked about Ebony Jet. The only reason I played that report and even some of why I don't play Melissa Harry, Melissa Harris Perry reports was in that report. But I do think black journalists are important. Chet Fuller just passed away a few days ago. He didn't write for Ebony or Jet, to my knowledge. He was with the uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, but still uh, black press, very important. Minister Malcolm was talking about that, uh, the preface to that segment. And I just have been literally looking at Jet Magazine because I said the book club is mandatory this time too so there's two mentions already today for the book that we are will finish this coming Thursday Absolute Madness the 22 caliber killer let's go Buffalo uh, I said the black press did an exemplary job covering uh, the 22 caliber killings uh, 1980 1981 and even beyond all the way through the trial Jet Magazine is a part of that. I have several uh, Jet articles talking about these killings uh, and this trial. So they have a lengthy history of doing great work. I just thought, oh, man, I just just looking at Jet Magazine. Even some of the listeners were sending me some of the Jet articles where they were talking about the 22 caliber killings that in that segment where they're talking about, oh, this is great the Smithsonian and they'll have all these archives and researchers they can go back now with what just happened in Buffalo it could be hey you could go and look what happened in Buffalo before the long history of these publications and important events that they talked about no 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 researcher wants to look at the history of drag and black people 
Are you serious? I know, I know. Bitter, privileged, blue gum, monkey, gusty. I know, I know. Homophobe, I know, I know, I know. Hate black female, I know, I got it. Yes, yes, right, got it, okay. I'm just saying, is that, that is the example for what we need for researchers. We're going to put Ebony, Jet Magazine, all of this material, wow, leading the way, black press, last half of the 20th century, and what's the example? What do we need to go look for? Black male in a dress. Oh, I can't wait. Maybe they do a whole exhibit on that at the Smithsonian. All of the images from Ebony and Jet Magazine, black males in dresses over the years. Work our way up to Tyler Perry. That's why I normally don't play Melissa Harris Perry. Right there. Right there. Anywho, black homophobe. Yes, Gusty Renegade. Got it. Blue gum monkey. Yes, yes. Um, Put that in there. So people that didn't hear neutralizing workplace racism yesterday might be stunned. Like, what did he say? Blue gum monkey you have to listen to neutralizing workplace racism to get the details on that that blue gum monkey BGM was not in the initial report that I read yesterday I had to click the link to get the extra details from the EEOC website the same thing happened today I'll say again I'm no fan of the redacting My, I, I'm, I'm a big boy I didn't say I'm a man but I'm a big boy the great Kobe Bryant, they got the trial. I didn't include the news segment on uh, this week, but the uh, officers, enforcement officials in California, the trial this week, them taking the, the pit, really lynching photographs, if you will, of the great Kobe Bryant, deceased. It's almost Kobe Bryant Day, 824. And them swapping. Look at that. Look at that old, old Kobe Bryant. Look at that one, old crispy Kobe. <laughs> them showing the pictures at the bar. Trial going on right this week. Delectable Negro, Kobe Bryant. Anyway, uh, I'm not a fan of redacting. Make it plain. You're not going to hurt my feelings. The great Kobe Bryant, he said, put on your big boy pants. Trying to be universal, man. At least you're trying to head in that direction. Right on. So you don't have to worry about sparing my feelings. Go ahead. Tell me what they said. So the report yesterday, they redacted. They didn't include. You had to dig a little bit to get Black Gum Monkey. Same thing happened today. I played the report about the officers in Vincent, Alabama. They said they're moving to dissolve the whole police department and terminate these officers for making these racially insensitive texts. Hmm. What, what? What? What was the text? Racially insensitive. That's vague. You know, that's ambiguity. That was that word before, right? So, what? What was the text? Whoa, we got a racist joke. You see, that's what I mean. If it was accurate journalism, integrity in journalism, I put that in the description. Counter racist media literacy. They leave out moo. I say that all the time. They will obfuscate. They will do a lot of omitting in these reports. So 
If they're going to dissolve the police department and firing all these people for insensitive tax, what, what, what was the text? Got a racist joke. And it was a doozy best racist joke that I've heard probably in a good week or so, maybe a couple weeks. So the racist joke was, I'm going to talk about reproductive rights. What do you call a pregnant slave? They didn't say, what is the tag? You want to talk about disingenuous? What is it? Enslaved per? They didn't say, what do you call an enslaved pregnant per? They didn't say that. They didn't say, what do you call a, a forced, a pregnant forced labor, any of that other tacky language victims guaranteed qualified for those who want to use that but eh, that's just as bad as the redactions in my view just make it plain and accurate so they said what do you call a pregnant slave buy one get one free Chris Rock, Richard Pryor, Chris Tucker, sit down. <laughs> Racist, got them all beat. Like, man, be here all weekend long. We got a billion of them. I will have you in stitches telling you about the Negro. Buy one, get one free. I'm going to tell you again, white people, they think differently the way non-white people think. Again, all these years, everything that we've experienced, George Floyd, Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, Emmett Till, Carolyn Bryant Dunham, all of that. How many of you, matter of fact, I had a listener Get uppity with Gus T right in and say, what do you mean on here giving out inaccurate information talking about uh, we are not at war with white people on here telling nonsense. Yes, we are right. All that same thing I said before VGQ. Same thing I said before. I do not like talking to non-white people. Not an enjoyable experience at all. No problem. Same thing I told them. Short conversation. VGQ, sir. If you are receptive, what I want you to do. Look at the black people. You're around. You don't need two hands. Use one hand. Count the black people that you see who speak, conduct themselves as though they are at war. See if you get to one. Maybe I've been in Seattle too long. I haven't been around the right black people I haven't seen the not effing around folks I have to go get around that contingent maybe maybe that's what it is Mm. or or wait a minute before I move if they are at war then you gotta see now which ones of these black people are at war with someone who is not black or non-white 
because I'm really only would be counting the black people who consider themselves or are behaving like they are at war with white people. We got any of you all you want to dial in if you you're around black people and they behave like they are at war with white people. Man, where do you live? We should all go there. White people speak and behave in that manner all the time. We are at war with the blue gum monkeys of the known universe. That's how they behave. All areas of people activity all over the known universe. Buy one, get one free. leave the racist joke out of the report come on uh, we'll get to the metaphors I'll get to the rest of it later uh, yeah we'll get to the rest of it later uh, the metaphors I was going to play Dr. O'Reilly's clip again uh, where he talked about the vehicles and the dump truck and you know black radicals in the archives if you missed it I'll go to what we heard today so they talked about Charlottesville you know they had to get Charlottesville in we couldn't have a week go by and have no Charlottesville. Heather Heyer, everybody remembers that from 2017. Oh my gosh, a white woman. You know they are never going to let us forget Heather Heyer's name. Like, never. This week was, what is it, I think eight years? Michael Brown Jr.? Also, this would be eight years John Jonathan Crawford III. I don't think their names got mentioned at all. Not a peep. But Heather Hare. Oh my gosh. We've got to take the next hour and do a program and a statue and where her parents are. Did anybody see Jonathan Crawford III's parents on television this week? Michael Brown's parents on television this week? Anybody? Their relatives say a word, reflect all these years, justice black male gone if he was alive probably would have been raping someone either of them Mr. Crawford or Mr. Brown but either that as it may uh, in the report from NPR uh, they talked about Charlottesville they said so Layla Fadel F-A-D-E-L she said Charlottesville marked <laughs> Gus T University of Virginia uh, graduate Wahoo Wah. I always chuckle when I read about this report like man I could have been on the grounds when this happened what would I have been doing hmm hopefully hiding out in my room or studying or someplace as safe as possible uh, so they say uh, Charlottesville marked a turning point that emboldened far right political violence in the US what does that mean Charlottesville marked a turning point. And that's such a common disingenuous metaphor. Turning point? Are we in a car? Which direction did we turn? Where are we going? Turning point? What are you talking about? That embolden. That's another common, so extra tacky. Embolden. I thought they were emboldened by President Trump. That was months before. And then they were emboldened by President Obama. That's what they said. All the Klan activity and the spikes online and everything else. Emboldened. 
how much more emboldened are they going to be? Come on. Let's see. And it continues. So that was Layla Fado. It continues. Debbie Elliott. Organizers targeted Charlottesville for the Unite the Right rally after the city voted to take down a Confederate statue, part of the town's reckoning with a fraught racial history. What is that? Reckoning. That's another reckoning. What does that mean? And then fraught racial history. This is Charlottesville. So you mean like Thomas Jefferson raping Sally Hemings? Is that what you mean when you say uh, fraught racial history? Is that what you mean? You mean like not allowing Negras to go to the University of Virginia? Is that what you mean? Fraught racial history? All of that is deliberate white supremacy racism and it even makes it sound like because they got so much of that social justice and anti-racism and blah, blah, blah. I said it consistently Gus T you put this down forever ever 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 Heather Hare suspected white supremacists and that's it I don't have any tears if I go back to Charlottesville I don't want to go and pay my respects at the monument if her parents want to come and chat it up phenomenal same way I talked about Mississippi is James Cheney and those two white boys same remember that we read case Isabel Wilkerson she mentioned Heather Hare by name three times in that book did not mention a single name of any of the black victims at Charleston's Mother Emanuel AME Church not even state senator Reverend Clementa Pinckney not even he got a mention but Heather Hare one two three times encased suspected white supremacist Heather Hare forever ever wahoo on that one too it's wahoo wah on that one too no metaphors racists are phenomenal uh, at that sort of it's deliberate deception deliberate obfuscation so that we're not speaking accurately correct understanding of what we're talking about so you and your mind just keep turning points and emboldened and fraught racial history what 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 are you even talking about we because we are confused and still learning hear all this nonsense we repeat and also do not closely scrutinize our words so we could be precise accurate with what we are saying that would be super appreciated I will give reminders about the metaphors not supposed to be used on any of the cows broadcasts we even had one yesterday a person called in and said thank you for allowing me to clear my throat that is not what we are doing on the cows we are sharing hopefully constructive logical information and being precise with words is a major fundamental component of counter racist science that is what we are supposed to be about universal woman universal man the number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate 
We'll get to the callers. There were other notes that I have. Uh, folks have thoughts about the Cincinnati, Ohio FBI breach. Uh, Ricky Schiffer, I did have a report about that, but I do certainly think that that is important, uh, as well as the break-in, because I was connected to them going into the Trump residence to get records and all of that. Uh, super important if folks uh, have thoughts on that. Any other incidents that took place uh, over the week? Certainly, if we have parents who have additional thoughts on talking to your children about the child rape component, so critically important. And if we have parents no spectating what have you shared with your offspring on this subject matter and given you know additional details anything else that you would like to share always good to hear from parents on that subject matter uh let's see star six one for the folks if you have commentary to share uh let's see folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open proceed Hey everybody, this is calling from the 712, and I just wanted to say um, when you were talking about how white people, they really don't really want for anything or need anything, when I see a lot of homeless white people where I live at, I just look at them and I don't, I'm like, what are you doing? They're not even really homeless like that, like they have somewhere to go, but they got non-white people down They're really homeless out there. But a lot of those where I live at, they're not even homeless like that. Like, they actually can go somewhere. They just don't want to do it. And they have, like, a major network, of course, with supremacy. So they don't really have to be that smart. I hear people saying white people are really, really smart. I mean, I guess the system of white supremacy is smart. But as far as them going to university and getting all these medical degrees and all they don't really have to be that smart they can just basically just be white is all they really need to do and when we were talking about we were talking about the children and the disregard for children i was just talking with my young people because they they brought it up to me they were like researching child labor um back in the um, early days of the united states just horrible. But what I told my children when they were going to school, you know, of course you give them, you know, don't let anybody touch your your area, you know, your private areas, as we call them, you know, excuse the metaphor. You don't let anybody do that. But going into middle school and high school, you know, I always told them, watch out for that. Watch out for that creepy gym teacher. I don't know if you guys remember that. Um, but I know when I was growing up, it was it was like always, if it wasn't like the eighth grade, it could have been like the ninth grade or tenth uh, grade gym teacher. There was always one that was really just, you knew something wasn't going on right with that guy or lady. At some schools, it was a creepy gym lady, just, you know, horrible. And I have one more thing. Oh, yes. Um Gus, I want you to keep asking the white guests for the um the what you for what you need because again, going back to what I was saying earlier and what you were saying, they they have it. It's not like they don't have it. So just keep asking them. You're, you get white people on there all the time. 
somebody is going to give it up. Okay, thank you. Much obliged. Thank you kindly uh, for sharing. White people have great uh, abundance. In fact, when she started off talking about that and saying, you know, just wherever she resides, or I guess she, anyway, I'm saying that she studies the individuals classified as white who, you know, or at least give the appearance that they are houseless and, you know, just out here bumming quarters or whatever. Uh, she said, hey, they have some place to go. They have resources. They have family or friends or, you know, whatever it is. Mr. Fuller, the very same broadcast, his third visit, uh, 2009, my goodness, very same broadcast when Mr. Fuller said that, what we just heard where he said, hey, they have a network. They drop out of school. They don't fall very far. Granddad hooked up this one and the cousin, the sister, very same program. He said that he said, he talked about wash. He said exactly what she just said. He said uh, in, he was in D.C. I don't think she called from D.C. He said he was in D.C. And they had the fellow out there. They called uh, the wolf man. And he said people would, you know, come and like, oh, man, because he's white, of course. Uh, you know, oh, man, we feel so sorry for you. And oh, you know, some food and, you know, clothes. Oh, man, it's just uh, white man shouldn't be out here like that. And he said that. uh I guess a reporter, somebody finally one day went up, you know, said, oh, man, you know, you seem like you got your faculties. You're white. You know, we can help you get on your feet. Like, uh, you know, what's, what's, what's your deal, man? What's going on? He said, uh, you know, I'm good. I don't need any help. You know, people come by and leave food and all that. But, you know, I'm chilling. <laughs> I didn't ask for any food. Like, uh, you know, I got family, relatives. They got plenty of money. They come and ask me to, you know, come back home all the time. But, you know, I don't like them. They're a bunch of bastards. And uh, I'm good. <laughs> he said now how many individuals classified as black they're out here you go ask them that's what they're gonna say like oh yeah Pfft. my people got plenty of money Bob Johnson money Braun James money I'm cool like, I don't, they get on my nerves like hey just a bunch of coons like uh, yeah I'm chilling I'm chilling I'm not how many black people that's what they're gonna say hmm I'm in Iowa, Gus, too. So even in the winter, they sit out there and they're just, they're just out there. I'm like, y'all, what are y'all doing? It's like I don't know. It's maybe it's fun for them, but I don't get it. Different experience for those classified as non-white who do not have any place to go or anyone to turn to. And again, like none of this is news to individuals classified as white in 2022 or even 50 years ago like like i said this this is in books cows archive and when we talked about these books on the cows they weren't new then either anywho oh and the child labor i did want to say something about that man i love it i love it she said white people don't care about children it's not just the Jerry Sanduskys and the fondling father Freemans and the Thomas Jefferson because Sally Hemings was a child. It's not just that Strom Thurmond. It's not just that. The labor laws. I t- throw that in all the time. That's why I said Alabama like bang. You hit that current like that's not like we're done with that and we don't do that anymore and have these draconian abusive practices for children who are in the workplace wrong. I just said that's Alabama right now August 2022 do not 
care about children. That's even the lifeguard situation in Chicago too. But we didn't intend to spend all the time on that, but just depends on and that's she said her children bring it to her. Bam, make it current to show that you see how enduring this pattern is? What it means to be white. Oh, love it when children that's why I said children Ah, when they're out and learning, oh, and you can aggregate the let's go to the library and research. Ah, love it, love it, love it. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up. Uh, if you have commentary to share, questions, suggestions, line should be open. Proceed. Gus, I had a uh, quick comment. Well, actually, no, it's a quick question. Um, but first, let me comment and say I commend you for all that you've done over these many years. Um, my question to you specifically, being that you'd had conversations with Dr. Francis Kretz-Welsing on air and off air, do you know um, why um, or what was the rationale behind her naming her book The ISIS Papers? Mm. I do not remember her explaining that part of the title. I'm sure she has detailed it. I feel like I've heard her give many more times where she's uh, explained the uh, keys to the colors component. Mm -hmm. I know the uh, spiritual deity, like a little bit spiritual deity uh, component uh, relating to uh, some of the African religious practices on the deity Isis. I'm sure that figured in but I have not heard her explain that component of it as often like the keys to the colors component like bang that's in the cows archives and many other times like I feel like I've heard her uh, or I won't even say I feel my memory is that she's explained that part of it way more frequently than the ISIS papers component but just offhand I do not recall uh, her explanation of that component of the title okay all right. Uh, yeah. Um, and I second uh, what you remember, because I do remember her explaining the keys to the colors component. And um, but I was just curious. And so I thought I'd call in and uh, ask you the question. So thank you. Good question. Did you check I'm the book line. just to see really quick? Did you check the book to see if it's explained there? I am going to have to revisit the book. I have the book. I've read the book. And then I was thinking to myself, did I remember, do I, and I was thinking to myself, did I, if I can recall, if she had explained it, and then I said, um, hmm, I'm going to have to go uh, do that. And so that's on my list of things to do, but the book is like within arm's reach. And so I can, um, so I'm going to research that <laughs> and go see if I can find out my, on my own. Love it. Now that's, I love that too. And I can get my own answers, but great question. Yeah. That's got Gus on that one. I have to go back myself and look at the book. Cause I think it is in the book. My memory, it's been probably a couple okay. of years since I've reread, but I think she does. If anybody remembers, or if you, you know, have your book right there and, you know, have a free moment, want to flip through and let us know. I'd be curious if it's not asking too much, you can find it easily. I'd be curious myself. Sure. Like if that's explained in the book. Um, at least at minimum now I have a reason to pick my book up again if we don't find out before we exit reading more important than watching television and certainly revisiting the ISIS papers is always you know good assignment for us uh, students of counter racism I'm sorry I found it here oh it's, what, what, on, it's in the 
Oh. Yep, it's in the preface. Um, let's see. V11. That's Roman legal. I'm going to try here. Bear with me. I'm not a tap reader. Uh, finally, the time has come for unveiling the true nature of white supremacy. For this reason, I have entitled my work The ISIS Papers, um, YSIS, in parentheses, papers, key to the colors. ISIS was the most important goddess of ancient Africa, specifically Egypt. She was the sister wife of the most important Egyptian god, Osiris, lord of the perfect black, and mother of Horus. And, and it goes on. So it's, uh, it's in the preface. Do you have the book, sir? Uh, yes, I do. And you said it, they, um, so I'm looking at the preface right now. And um, so uh, what page or what nu- uh, numerical? It was, what? Yeah. It was Where is it? VII. VII. Oh, okay. Seven. Okay. Yeah, I think that means that's supposed to mean seven. Um, okay. So on that page. Okay, cool. Uh, yes, I see it. Finally, the time has come for unveiling the truth. Thank you very much. Yeah. I see it and I will refer to that. Okay, thank you. Awesome. Love it when we get a question answered quickly. Efficiency. Always love that. Don't have to be held uh, in mystery uh, about things. Once again, reading is more important than watching television. Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, the grandsister, I'm sure she would have a smile like, yes, reading my book, yes, I wrote it all out, it's right there. Uh, let's see. Uh, did other folks commentary that they wanted to share? Star 6-1. Okay. Rob in Southern California. Yes, sir. Yeah. So I wanted to touch on the um, talking to the children about uh, being sexually abused. Um, I think that uh, parents should start talking to their children um, before they can talk. Um, And I think that it may be a level of denial. um, And I can just speak with from my family. Um, I think there is a level of denial when that abuse comes at the hands of family members. And um, to my knowledge, um, a lot of times when um, people are being sexually abused at that young age, it often comes at the hands of a family member or someone that is close to the family or someone that um, they know. Um, and I'm speaking from a personal experience. My mom uh, was sexually assaulted um, at a very young age, um, and that led her to uh, a crack cocaine addiction at the age of 14. And uh, something that I noticed, like, um, my mom used to act like she hate me, right? And I asked her one day, like, you know, like, do you, like, hate me? Do you hate men? And uh, she said, yeah. You know, and um, she got two sons, you know, and um, just looking at the damage um, that she incurred through that, she never healed. 
she never recovered. Um, and uh, the last thing I want to touch on is, uh, you know, I've been um, been in California for almost five years, growing now. Uh, I moved to this part of California um, at the age of, uh, I was already over 35. Um, I moved here with a book bag, nothing, literally. Um, and I've been here maintaining myself for five years, um, living with a disability, and I get up and go to work every day. Um, and so now, uh, next, well, this coming up Wednesday, I'll be starting a uh, second job of employment, um, doing the kind, same kind of work, uh, coming in at a, a couple extra nickels more than I'm making right now. And uh, with that, I'll meet my line, and thank you for taking the call. Rob said, I am never going back to Wisconsin. I don't, I dig it. I dig it. I dig it. Congratulations. New job. Aren't you a parent? Isn't that, isn't that true? Aren't you a parent, Rob? Maybe already muted. Might have muted. I thought Rob's a parent too, though. Um, but much obliged for Tanny. He, he said, you know, hey, and what he said is true, though. I don't know if he got muted already, but uh, in terms of the abuse, it does. Oh, we dropped off. I didn't see. Uh, my fault. Sorry about that. Uh, the abuse does oftentimes come from someone who is a so called family member or so called neighbor school no place is safe on the plantation that's why I said it might be a case of where you might have to talk about this again this is not going to be a conversation that you're you know excited I think for most people just excited and ah this is going to be a great day I look forward to um, probably have to have this conversation more often than you would like and sooner than you would like and I think uh, the mom who wrote in, I thought that was really important as well, where she said that this is something that might take time and just developing trust where they, your children can feel comfortable coming to talk to you about things that are super uncomfortable um, and where they might feel, you know, that they did something wrong as opposed to I am a child, I am a victim, I was like that sort of thing. So just making sure that you know they know they will be supported uh you will help them i got you like i'm here for your safety just let me know and i will do as much as i possibly can uh to you know keep you safe keep anybody if they've done something to go and get these folks make sure it never happens again but just making sure that the uh communication is there that they feel safe uh, and are willing to come and trust talking to you uh, about some I mean that's why I said these conversations hopefully this will be the most uncomfortable component of this subject matter that you have to deal with just this conversation hopefully they will never have any sort of experience anything even looks a little bit unsafe and hazardous some sort of sexual violation I am out of here I'm calling you know mom dad whomever else and getting out of here I'm in the wind as they say but super important if parents have any tips or strategies let us know uh, live or archive until justice at gmail.com you can write in and uh, we can share uh, on the air 
uh, let's see I'll get in one of our emails different email before we get to some of the other folks who dialed in uh, this is Irie Louisiana she writes good night everyone and thanks for the broadcast Gus I appreciate the kind words uh, last night regarding my report of dual anti-blackness I want to recommend to all ladies with female issues to look up Dr. Phil Valentine's The Wounded Womb on YouTube he gives many tidbits that will effectively reduce or eliminate reproductive problems the actual book is very expensive I've heard that before but there are copies out there another recommendation this one is mine is exercise 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 she has it in all capital level letters every time my motto is if you don't use your body you'll lose your body similar to the mind I can run three miles without issue and have start to train myself in basic martial arts. Please note I was told I had the knees of a 60 year old when I got out of the military many many suns ago. Since being a vegan plant based diet and extremely serious about fitness I don't have any reproductive issues and my joints are phenomenal. It also cured my 20 plus year dermatitis. I have more energy and brain function brain function too. Another thing is don't drink or smoke. That moron, he says sobriety would be best. I smoked for a long time. It messed with my skin quality and made me snore, which I meant which meant I was not breathing properly at night. I don't think most people understand that. Like, snoring is a symptom of like may perhaps some underlying health issues at minimum like you are having some breathing uh issues when i was tubby drinking juicy juice no exercise eating briar's ice cream oh, i used to love briar's ice cream anyway and was t- and snore snore and snore and snore and i did not realize like ooh that is a symptom of poor health once i got the weight down no more snoring much of the ladies in the report problem is probably fixable with correct foods and movement but that is not how we are trained to think about our health and that is very very common and particularly when you have long like years decades lifetime of poor eating not drinking water that's a big one for lots of folks not drinking enough water help cleanse out your system go to the bathroom help get some of those toxins out talking about dermatitis and uh, clearing your skin up and other things just that alone drinking juice what do you talk about drinking juicy juice and sodas and uh, all those caffeinated concoctions at all the java places and everything else water water and then plant-based diet putting down all the crazy you know funyuns and everything else fruit it's summertime can't say that enough it is summertime fresh fruits should be super abundant of all kinds figs grapes peaches mangoes dragon fruit kiwi blueberry i mean in cherries like all kinds of goodies like put down that bag of chip 
chips and craziness and all the rest of it and get some fresh fruits, exercise and water, water. Can't emphasize that enough. Drink more water. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Other folks. Uh, if you have commentary uh, to share again don't wait till the last minute uh, folks have commentary questions suggestions to share uh, line should be open appreciate it good Somebody was getting there. While folks are getting their uh, thoughts together, I reckon to share the uh, report I did not get to comment on. Uh, one, or I guess I'll get into one. They gave the segment Kentucky and Tennessee. They said that they have, I guess, some sort of holiday that's akin, similar to Juneteenth, where they celebrate the end of slavery. Even though I did think that was uh, important, they said that Kentucky and Tennessee, since they were not a part of the Confederacy and the abolition of slavery only pertained to the Confederacy, it did not apply to the Negroes in Kentucky and Tennessee, respectively. Uh, So, anyway, that that is important but okay uh, so they give out all this so they have their day of celebration and what have you within that report they said that this was a tradition started by black people and you can see that if you study Kentucky Tennessee history you see the black people after end of the civil war they start this celebration and then they're moving through the state and maybe even out of Kentucky as they're being persecuted after reconstruction and I said now that right there why are we celebrating again we get our cake watermelon whatever else how we're going to celebrate and then oh lord grab the punch bowl and run race soldiers are coming Peyton Gendron his great great grandfather about to get it like why are we celebrating again and matter of fact Kentucky man we watched this at the D.C. yoga retreat. They got uh, the documentary. I think it's on YouTube called Trouble Behind. It's about uh, Corbin, Kentucky, when they ran all the Negroes out. Beautiful scene. They got the, the segment where the white man uh, is talking about all this and saying that the white people there weren't racist. And he, he knows this because he had a dog that was black. And they called the dog. Blue gum monkey. No, Negro. Um, so that was the one report I wanted to make sure just I'm not into I don't celebrate Juneteenth uh, whatever that I don't even remember the name of the holiday and I don't care because I'm not going to celebrate that I don't celebrate birthdays Halloween Labor Day I'll celebrate when we have permanently replaced white supremacy with justice every dance imaginable I'll be right there Uh, the other report quickly I get something on when they talked about uh, the swirling situation in South Florida gone bad Courtney Clinney uh, the white woman she's charged second degree murder stabbing this black male to death down in Florida man Neely Fuller Jr. has said for years anybody that you argue with all the time hey 
we gave it a try this is not working let's find someone where we don't have to do all this arguing even if these had been two individuals classified as non-white we argue so much that we are notorious throughout the building for having all kinds of arguments and confrontations that right there like what is the problem like really that's that's another thing you'd be talking to your child about right there like this is totally unacceptable you as a black male you as a black female you cannot be in any sort you can't even have friends much less a sexual partner you don't even want your homies to be people that oh god there they go again what what much less you got your interracial thing so called going and everyone in the building that's their recollection oh god here they go again are you serious it's so bad that the property owners are not even going to renew your lease they want you out of the building because you all are known for your volatile spats got video and all like are you serious I know that this victim is confused about racism because of he's got white friends white sex so I know you're super confused already got that you as a black male you with a white you with a white woman and you all are scraping and arguing and all this out in public it's getting physical even if it had not got to this him being killed someone could have a white person could have seen one of these spats and ooh I need to call the police. That nigger is about to beat that white woman, even though she might have been the aggressor. In some of the video, at least the footage they show, that's what it was. She was being violent, but whatever. Raping nigger, he probably did something. Let me call the police. That could have been a horrendous situation. Or we all remember Trayvon Martin. Florida is stand your ground. It easily could have been Z. Oh my lord, that hulking nigra, that blue gum monkey is about to rape that white woman. Where's my 45? That could have easily happened too. Lots of anybody like that is a big one. Everybody who is a victim of white supremacy and especially if you are classified as a black male, you cannot cannot be known as someone oh god this person is always in conflict or they he's a part of the posse the group even if it's two people mob deep you cannot with a white woman oh my confusion is lethal and then on top of all of that young male is dead disgusting they said okay bam charging her second degree murder you killed this victim swirling gone wrong we're gonna make the arrest where is she she wait a minute she 
She's in Hawaii. <laughs> said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> I didn't, I, it's why I just said this yesterday. It's not funny. Sometimes you what to say. You have to laugh to keep from crying. This happened in South Florida. I literally just told someone yesterday. Hawaii is far. Hawaii is so far. The flight from San Francisco to Hawaii. We're talking California is five hours. That's how far Hawaii is. This white woman killed a Negro in South Florida. I'm going to go hang out while you all, you know, adjudicate all this. I told you that Negro was a savage. I'm going to go work on my tan down here on the big island get me a few coconuts have me a pineapple maybe check out the uh, Pearl Harbor Museum you all get at me I do love Hawaii but I mean wow I didn't I didn't go hang out in Hawaii when I had a murder indictment (laughs) pending that was not what I was doing while I was kicking it uh, in Hawaii but anyway talk about sharing with young people for reals you have any young people that are confused about racism oh man mom's always talking you know you can't be dating white people can't have no black uh, white boyfriend can't have a white girlfriend and all that ooh Make sure they see this one. What are your thoughts on it? This might write a report. Folks still out on summer vacation. How about you find 10 really quality articles on this incident and write a report on what you've learned? Summer homework, indeed. Other folks who have commentary to share, star six one. Do not wait till the last minute. Uh, all the folks who are with us, caller in Florida too, should be here. Uh, can I be heard again? Robert in Southern California. Uh, yeah. Um, so I just wanted to chime back in. I had to end up uh, <clears throat> accidentally hanging up the phone when I tried to meet my line last time. Um, I just wanted to uh, just um just talk about uh you were talking about the like incompetent uh people classified as white on the job um i actually experienced that at the job uh the person that i trained um uh i think he would be classified as a hispanic white he's a white person he says he's not white but he speaks spanish but he looked white but so Everybody were like right now kind of complaining about his uh, his work performance. And um, today I really just had the observation, like under that leadership role, he's um, he's getting to walk around and not do any work. You know what I mean? And um, it's just a it's just a really interesting observation. That's why. Uh, it was very interesting to hear that being talked about on the program tonight because it seems that that type of uh, behavior is widespread from people classified as white. And uh, that's it right now. Thank you. Extremely goes right 
uh, it's parallel with the commentary about white people having a broad network. So, you know, if they drop out of school or lose a job or whatever, yeah, no big deal. <laughs> Other, my uncle Fred, you know, take care of my house payments for the next year. Or so actually he owns an apartment complex. So I could just go stay there, get me a nice spot over there and kick it for a few years. till I figure things out like that whole different perspective. And for the workplace, it's astounding because black people get fired all the time for being incompetent in the workplace. Even competent black employees get fired for incompetence in the workplace or at least branded, thought of, treated as incompetent in the workplace. Individuals classified as white, even if they are incompetent doesn't seem to be a penalty for it at all frequently doesn't even encumber their ability to what did they say move on up the ladder anywho uh, and they even had the audacity I think they even uh, said that Rob is proficient works well he's here the restaurant runs great man we're getting everything out and customers are pleased wow that white fella mm. <laughs> hey hey system of white supremacy we got lots of incompetent carries and shiftless shawns lots and lots uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in, hand up. If you have commentary to share. Proceed. May I be heard? Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners, and callers. Um, there were uh, a lot of things on the audio segment or a few things I noticed um, the the first one was, I think it was the, the, I think it was called Jasper Marion County, like the school where you did the, the, the run it back um, where they were, it sounds like they were threatened to be shot. I believe uh, I think it was a part of it where it mentioned I guess that was someone classified as white or one of the students there um, mentioned about if this was a a few years ago, if this was some years ago, something would be done to you. I think, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, that's, that sounds like that's uh, a reflection or representative of how this generation of the uh, white supremacists, teenagers and children is I think have gotten worse if I could use that those words it doesn't look like that things have improved constructively it just it just sounds like they are and not and see I am thinking about that word in Bolton but just more confident in practicing racism white supremacy and then they'll have the segment the part of the segment where the uh more adult 
white person saying, hey, we just want to make sure all everyone is being given their respect or something like that. And it just sounds like he, whoever that person was, was prepared to give that kind of a statement, which is vague sounding and it's something that they can always use and codify and um, say every time that there's some kind of a news report done. Um, the next one was the segment about, I think, yeah, the Jet magazine and doing the archiving. And uh, I don't know if they were going to do a website for that as well, or is it just going to be like a type of museum set up or a library? Uh, it would be interesting to see what, like, how would they get those images uh, digitized, like in color or what? Or the person was talking about video footage. Um, and I did notice that I think, yeah, they were talking about drag and everything. So I also as well, I have to, uh, pass on that as well. The, I have two more, the segment on the, uh, where we're talking about the white, well, I call white supremacist suspect, the, the Trump supporter up in Cincinnati, I think. Uh, they use the word, right, that they were saying that the investigation was getting murky. So I looked that term up, and it sounded like I heard that word before. And just on Google, it says the definition of murky is dark and gloomy, especially due to thick mist and then the the synonyms, dark, gloomy, gray, dull, dim, overcast. So those are the words that came up. Um, and I had, there was a, a news report here in the city that I'm in where, and I think this has been happening in other places too, where they're using these Ziploc bags, uh, race soldiers, and throwing them on people's lawns a property, the front lawn. Um, there are two quotes on this article because I already seen it on the news. Now, the first one, it looks like they went and talked to a white person that was standing next to a non-white person. So I'm thinking they uh, may be in a so-called marriage with each other. So they got this quote from a, a white person that said he's Jewish. Yes, sir. And... Now, they labeled this anti-Semitism, but this is the quote they got from the white person. It reads, I never really understood it. And you think it's gone. You think all this stuff really is gone. And I think it's always been there under the surface. And ever so often, it just has to rear its head. So that's, that was his comment. And then the reporter um, said that the the flyers, white supremacist flyers in a Ziploc bag with corn in it, corn. It says, we are dedicated to stopping anti-whiteism, anti-whiteism, mass immigration of the third world, communism, degeneracy, race mixing, and to restoring the greatness of the white race. And then the mayor, a white person, uh, at the end of the report said that, hey, if you all get any more of these anti-Semitic 
flyers. It didn't say racism or white supremacy. That's that's the language that they use. But I don't see where it's being communicated in that quote. Uh, and, and that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Yes, it's rearing its head again. Wow. Our caller in Florida, the uh, folks in Jasper at the school, I believe the young fella, he told them, so this is like 12, right? That would, now that would have been a beautiful one to drop President Obese, young people getting better and all the rest of it. I mean, wowzers, 12. These folks were barely born when he made those comments like for real barely born barely potty trained when he made those comments uh so he told them they said they said they were playing whatever the game oh it was football i think too like oh the worst drain damage hopefully it was flag so they were playing football and the team i guess with the black people was winning and said the the young fella and i said man this is a few years ago you'd be shot I mean, it's 2022, man. Like, how is that immediate expulsion? Like, what the world? And particularly all this nonsense about Uvalde and all the rest of it. Come on. Come on. You have to tell me something. Lots, actually. Highland Park, all the rest of it. Tops, you have to tell me something. And that's 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 ignorant about racism right at 12 they said middle school 12 so that's he doesn't he doesn't know anything Mm. anywho the uh the i guess the what you call it the advertisements anti-whiteism that's a new i haven't even heard that before um the under the surface and rearing its head all of those metaphors same thing I said before uh, minimizing obfuscating the whole system is about dominating non-white people that is not under the surface making it sound like it's rearing its ugly head like this is a once in a while this is a problem they throw a little corn on your property like no global system of white supremacy racism that's why a 12 year old really anywhere in the world can look at a black person this was a few years ago really (laughs) today but I mean you know we could do this in not a whole lot of to do and no trial and maybe we come around and take a few pictures and then you know take a penis or a foot few fingers put them in a ziploc bag and call it a day just a few years ago that's the way we would have handled you hmm. that is not rearing its ugly head that is not under the surface that is the as opposed to systemic racism the system is white supremacy racism and racist child I am very aware 
violence. Same thing, violence. We're playing football. Like, is it that serious? We're playing a game in middle school. Recess, what they call it, I think. I'm not worried about, you know, perfect attendance, honor roll, going to high school. Am I going to make first cuts on the basketball team? Nah. These Negroes win at recess and I'll kill them. Once again, what does it mean to be white? I gagged the audacity. It was said again today right there. They talked about all the progress that we have made. Are you serious? Are you serious? You got 12 year olds threatening to shoot and kill black children and they're talking about and does he get expelled? They said they show up first day of school. Shiny new lunch pail. Ready to I'm ready to learn. You had better let me win in recess recess today or you know what's going to happen. Said they went to talk to the white people in charge. Superintendent all the rest. Said, hey, he threatened. Y'all saw Uvalde. You said he was going to be expelled. Why is he here? Hmm. Hmm. Literally, she said that's what they said. They gave her the mm. <laughs> things. <laughs> what? 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 Now again, now imagine your child, little Jamal, little Jacinta, black female. They're at school. They get accused calling someone the f word. Now you think they go up to the superintendent meeting and say, "Hey." Jamal, you know, has been running around and saying that they need to do something and saying the F word and all that. You think it's just come? Mm. We just don't know what to do with Jamal. I thought he was going to be expelled. Yeah. We just don't know what to do with Jamal. That's what they do. Black, black males, black boys, especially. That's what they that's what they do at school. Just can't punish him. Just can't seem to 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 get the discipline under control. Hmm. Anywho, uh, we will call the pieces of a puzzle. They said that they said that the video was one of the pieces of the puzzle. I said, oh, that's Renitia Tate's book, Pieces of a Puzzle. Even though that that's uh, white men and black females, but I mean it's the same power dynamic and I mean tragically the same result total annihilation of a black male meanwhile in Hawaii uh, we'll be here on Wednesday white guests only cannot wait Cointel Pro might even get to come up again I'll be super excited same program time 8pm Eastern 5pm Pacific make sure you are talking to your offspring about racism white supremacy child rape sobriety and why it is important whatever else you think is super important exercise forgot exercise and quality sleep that'll be uh one quality sleep 
drinking water. There we go. That would be my my quick ones. Quality sleep, just because I think many people and particularly this culture is not about sleeping. It's about burning the midnight oil, thinking about ways of harming dark people. Sleep is critical for health, especially long term health. Get your rest again. We don't need midnight basketball. Just go to bed. Get your rest so that your brain can be replenished. You can think at a high level. We will need high level brain functioning to solve the problem. That said, much obliged for the folks who joined us live or archive. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. See if you can find some things for Gus to do in Buffalo before it gets cold. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. In addition to being sober, if you are out and about, someone is being rowdy and hostile, exit. You don't know if they are armed or with an armed entourage. If you are not ready to kill and or die immediately, exit. If you are in a vehicle, you are buckled, not on your cell phone and sober doing the small things to keep ourselves as safe as we can and to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name call no name calling no gossiping no reckless production of offspring Drink more water, get more sleep. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> <laughs>